going. Uh, all systems seem to be good. Yeah. Hello, Mike. Hello. How are you doing, Mike? Doing great. Doing great. One of the first things I did when I got this microphone that I'm using now is uh, break the plastic stand. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great sign. And uh, I bought some super glue the other day. This old-fashioned super glue, and it's it's working like a champ. Nice. I'm just trying to get set up here. I am streaming to Twitch as well. Uh, the recording will be saved. So that's nice. Great. Great. Let's just uh, tag a few more people. Are you going to add everyone? or Everyone, I'm borrow that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Using at everyone, you're about to mention 600 plus people. Are you sure? <laughs> 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 That's always a scary thing to see. Um, well, uh, that was quick. See what happens when we add everyone. <laughs> cool. I think we're breaking records here. Uh, yo, what's good? <laughs> hey, uh, hey, what's up, web devs? All right. Oh my God. Awesome. You you get what you wish for. And oh God! Panel, it seems we're like. gonna we're gonna break Craig so badly. <laughs> Craig is I just gonna to... Craig's just gonna go away and cry. Yeah, I can't handle much. this many people. Um. So yeah, we are recording and we are streaming to Twitch. Uh, if you guys don't want to be heard, uh, be sure to mute your mic. Uh, but you can feel free to listen. That is perfectly okay. Uh, if you have any questions and stuff, you can post it in the podcast channel. Or uh, we are also streaming to Twitch, although uh, addressing stuff in that chat is a little bit more difficult. Awesome. This is exciting. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Sorry to the two folks who were annoyed by the everyone thing. <laughs> <laughs> um this is fun. So thanks everyone for joining. Um, we've been setting up and running this Discord uh, to connect people on the web dev channel um, in a more real-time way. And we've figured out that there was some interest in... Sorry, Gman, can you mute your, your mouse? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Um, and yeah, having more of a real-time voice chat and we figured out that it was a little confusing or complicated when to do it and Time management? That's kind of interesting. <sighs> time management's yeah. like the hardest thing to do as a web developer. Um, like are always underselling how long something will take and <laughs> saying, oh, like rewriting the CMS. That's the, I, I can do that in a weekend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but when you're mapping it into a, a broader, a broader project, like you're uh, planning a, a release cycle, um, it gets it gets a lot a lot harder. Um, I had a call with a client recently, and um, there's a task that we want to do that I think will take like three working days to to get through. And so I told them probably four weeks is a good is a good time for us to to check back. Um, and it's it's sort of um, you know you you take your estimate you you double it just to be safe and then there's other clients and other things that you have to do so that was um, kind of my uh, answer there and and I felt like it was kind of the comfortable and 
and mature thing, way to estimate. Um, and especially if you're, I don't do freelance stuff, um, but in this this particular instance was more of like a, a client-based type of engagement. Um, but definitely on the, the freelance side, has anyone seen themselves change over time and how they, they give estimates to, to clients or to their boss within a company? That's uh, a great question. I'm actually I'm glad I just jumped in <laughs> to answer this question. I'm sorry. I, I thought we were recording an hour later from now. Um, all good. All good. Yeah, last week we were an hour later. Yeah. So I have a I use a very simple equation to estimate how I how I uh, how I estimate uh, freelance jobs and estimates. Uh, it's based off of this. Um, based off of how much I need the money is one of the variables. The other variable is how much I enjoy my free time currently and how much I'm willing to give away my, give, you know, not give away, but uh, well, take away my free time, I guess is the, is the phrase to use. So if I really am enjoying my free time and I don't need money, I give an estimate that might be double or triple what it usually is. If I need the money and I have free time, but I'm not really needing to use it or not wanting to use it, I, I, I give a lower estimate. So it's, it's all about... That's my, the equation I use. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like totally. How, how sleep deprived are you? <laughs> how sleep deprived do you want to be in two weeks? <laughs> yeah. Um, so Mihai asked, how do you give yourself an hourly rate? Mihai. Oh. <laughs> nice. Um, how do you set the price? I don't ever set an hourly rate. I set a, a job per job. Most of the jobs I get are WordPress sites, and it's mostly help someone else screw up the site. Please unfuckify it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Can we ask questions on voice? Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. just a discussion, and we're only making it as structured as it needs to be. Yeah. So how do you get like uh, recommend starting out freelancing, like using a website for it or... Uh, emailing local like uh, restaurants at companies, et cetera. Look for the opportunities is what I would say. Um, like, let's say you have a small Chinese restaurant near where you live, where you, where you like the restaurant, there's their website sucks. You say, Hey, look, uh, I want, I can, I can uh, get you a new site up for uh, X amount. And you, you give them a good price because they're a small business. If, because if you're just starting out, you're, you're looking to build portfolio pieces. You're not looking to work for free. Let, let me just get that immediately straight. If anyone says the word exposure to you, run away. Yeah. Run away. But if you're just starting out, you need portfolio pieces, you do need to, you do need to quote, lower than market standard to build up your base. Because if you got, no, if you got nothing to demonstrate your skills, no one's going to hire you. Yeah. Let me call attention to a very famous forum post on that subject called 22 letters equals $17,000 profit in three weeks. It's from the Black Hat World forums, which that's not what it sounds like. They're talking about Black Hat SEO. Um, I'll post a link in the <laughs> podcast, but this is a, a very famous uh, post uh, by a user 7878, who I think was a moderator there or something like that. But basically they have a system where they will look up every local business in their town and they will basically print out a picture of their website or a picture of their reviews online, circle the things that are bad and say, hey, these things are negatively impacting your business. Look at like, um, here's your website and here's how I can't find the menu. Here's 
what happens when I Google your website and I see negative reviews? And uh, they basically just do that for every small uh, business nearby and they put it in some padded packaging, something that looks like a package so that it doesn't go into their junk mail. So it costs I, a little bit more. Uh, I tried put, that. I got a really bad reaction. I, you know, it, it's not negative on you. I guess it's like a numbers game too. It's uh, I, I was interviewed by a company that, uh, slightly different situation, but I was interviewed by a company that needed a new website. And I said, well, here are the 10 things that, are, that your website's doing wrong. And they, it, because they were looking for a web guy, they even s said on, in, on the uh, listing they were looking for a web guy. <clears throat> so I figured they aren't married to their site. I'm able to pitch anything. Turns out the owner's nephew made the site that they made, and they were only looking for someone to improve his ability. So, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, that's tough. Um, the other link, um, the Black Hat World link, it shows specifically, it's pretty cool. Like, you have four one-star reviews on the first page of Google when you search for the name of um, the restaurant. So they're saying more of like, um, like, like it's it's a higher it's a different kind of it's like a marketing strategy where you're selling the benefit of hiring you as a web developer. They call um, this reputation management. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, another kind of question, like, okay, how do you start out um, getting your first clients? That, that was a TGB's question, and I, I've been planning a, a startup business uh, where we're to web. Uh, platform where we sell access to it. But what we sort of did was instead of figuring out how to get our first clients, we kind of figured out, we think a lot about what's our end game. So like, where do we want to be in five to 10 years acting as if we've conquered the market? And so we're, we're kind of aiming um, like the Bruce Lee, when he kicks someone, he's not aiming at your chest, he's aiming a foot and a half behind your chest and that's why you go flying. So looking and how to think about your first clients is super interesting and super important. There's another level to it, which is what do you want your 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 business to be in, in five years? Um, and what do you want that to look like? And by kind of aiming for there, then you can start to constrain and shake out what some of your first steps are. Um, curious if anyone Wants to run with that idea. There's lots of good in what you said. The uh, there's there's a reality that always has to be balanced, though. Uh, th that reality is paying the bills, but at the same time, I totally get what you're saying because I've seen this happen lots of times where you have shops that needed to pay the bills early on, but they get a client in on a sweetheart of a deal, and the client is grandfathered in, and, you, and the company's trying to grow. But they have this albatross around their neck of these old legacy clients that uh, that uh, were signed on and pays on the dollar, and yeah. and because they, they're attached to your company as a client, you can't really kick them out too much because of the vis the visibility. It's uh, I've seen it happen and it sucks. It's uh, I, I think about market segments a lot. So if you're focused on building websites for restaurants, which is a huge potential market. Like you could really grow and build 
millions of dollars of revenue just chasing all all of um, all of that market. Um, but if your first legacy client is a dentist, then you don't get that that benefit of having them around at a cheaper price. But if that first client is like a restaurant or something like that, at least you can use them as for credibility. Um, maybe they'll step up more often and be a reference to a new restaurant that's coming on board. Um, so, so that's kind of what I'm thinking. Like when you're thinking about your first customer, um, also think about like, what do you want your, your 50th client um, to look like? If you put in the, the energy and the effort to build and sustain your business, start subcontracting, um, et cetera. Yeah, and I read that like if you, um, what you take your first job as sometimes ends up being more than just that job. Like if you take a job to make like a, a ski a ski resort website or something, then maybe you'll end up doing some more ski resorts and that type of thing. Oh, we um, have a question in chat about the learn about more businesses and learn about business managing it. Um, there's a couple of books that uh, really helped me uh, work really well with people and uh, pre-qualify clients and pre-qualify pre Workplaces I work at. There are two books by the same author. Robert uh, Sutton is the author's name. Uh, he, had, he wrote two fantastic books. One book called Good Boss, Bad Boss. Uh, and one book called The No Asshole Rule, which is a fantastic book. Anyone Has anyone here read The No Asshole Rule book? I read a, what sounds like similar-spirited book called Hiring for Attitude. Uh, I strongly recommend um, that as just a pretty readable way of talking about um, I could list some facts out of it, but they keep going. Uh, well, the no asshole rule is a book. It, it, it can apply in either or case, either working with people or, or picking clients and choosing clients. Uh, because there's this one chapter that talks about a business that actually that had one difficult employee that cost a lot of money in hiring. Basically they had this one employee that was an asshole and there was a, total costs for the whole company based off of uh, based off of sending other people that have to work with them to therapy cost of hiring and rehiring and retraining assistants that quit within months and they tallied up a total per year of how much this employee cost them and they, they they said hey look this guy costs us this much money a year he's not worth it uh, so let's get rid of him and Again, wow. it works for an employee. That's crazy. Well, yeah, it's, I think this is actually the men's warehouse. Like a dollar amount to how toxic a, a bad yeah. employee is. is well, that, that's the thing is, <laughs> if you ever find yourself working for an agency or a shop and you have that client and you know that you're going through the fifth or sixth revision that's off of scope and off of, uh, off of the, uh, the model, you, you start tallying that amount because project managers, I got some project manager stories for later, by the way. But project managers don't ever really see the cost of an the, the total cost of an asshole until you lay it out. And <clears throat> you know, project managers rarely like firing clients. So uh, if you, uh, if you lay down the numbers, if you lay down the numbers and say this guy's costing us this much, we could have we could have used the same amount of time and energy and then done three websites versus this guy's one and make triple the money and we're losing money on this guy now and you show them numbers that back that up most project managers are going to say holy crap you're right let's get rid of this guy 
Yeah, the the book I read uh, stated the premise of most people in general who apply for a job, get hired for a job, are qualified for that job. And generally, the um, issues that come about with that hire is around their attitude. If they're uh, there's um, if they're just not solving problems, they're creating drama in the workplace. And to focus on on that side of things, um, hiring for attitude, just like having a group of people that are supporting each other, connecting with each other, um, passing batons around, you know, looking out for each other, and just also spending a lot of time doing the work that they have to do. Um, I do. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Most of the time, uh, the biggest problem with that is mainly based on the fact that uh, I've seen it too many times where people who are underqualified or unqualified get jobs. Uh, you know, uh, reference Dan. Uh, the there's another book that is fantastic and plays this out. It's called The Peter Principle. It's the idea that people are promoted to the point of their beyond the one step beyond their competency i think that in general if you are already applying for a job the employ employer is expecting more a positive attitude towards coding in general rather than your actual skill because at, at the end of the day anyone can learn if you're you know somewhat serious about what you're doing you can learn certain parts of the stack that the company uses pretty fast. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters really is how you treat the others in your in your team and your workplace in general, because you don't want to be stuck with, you know, working with a person that, you, you know, I don't want to use bad words here, but in general is just, you know, has a shitty personality. I'm, I'm sorry for using. How um, dare you? Yeah, my my bad, but yeah, that I hadn't no other way to express myself. What the fuck? <laughs> That's the spirit. <laughs> yeah, that that all makes sense. Something to kind of jump topics, but try to keep them all interconnected. There was a question around college experience um, and how important that is for, and I think this is sort of specific to web development, um, like. If you're, um, a, a lot of web development skills and are learned on the job. Like if you have a Java background and you're coming into a Python stack or or whatever, there's a, almost a lot more room for all that. So what you are hiring for, or looking out for, or you want to signal to someone is that this is a problem. You you can learn on the go. You can communicate really well what your issues are um, and what they they aren't when you get stuck um, those sorts of things um, so so the the college educated thing I think it's more like you're interested in yeah like like the person or that that energy almost does anyone um, have personal experience like not having as high a degree as they felt like should have been required and just kind of soldiering through anyway I got a job I'm super happy with without any college experience whatsoever. And cool. that 
comes just from um, having a good portfolio, because that's really, in the end, all that genuinely matters is what work you can perform. And in my situation, personally, when I was in high school, I had a really hard time trying to figure out what the career path was for a web developer. I kept trying to ask, like, uh, in high school, you have guidance counselors, and they had no idea. I finally went to community college for a little while. They still had no idea. They say to do computer science, which is great for some aspects, but not necessarily web development. Um, I ended up leaving that due to uh, basically, honestly, just because I'm not very great at math <laughs> and I wanted to focus more on uh, coding and everything like that. And uh, eventually landed a job with a CICD company and learned everything else I know pretty much on the job. What type of project was it? Just side projects on your portfolio? Yeah. So the I mean, everyone's gonna do it a little differently. I took a weird path where what I did was I started a YouTube channel that acted as my portfolio. So I actually began teaching uh, web development. More or less, I would just take what I learned and repackage it into a an episode type format to teach others, and that was my that was both my proof to show that I knew what I was learning, but as well as demonstrating it in a live portfolio. So that was a dual action for me. But if you can do, I mean, whatever you need to do, as long as you, if you have a GitHub and a LinkedIn, that's all you need. Just make sure that you're actually doing, you know, make sure you finish projects. Don't don't just half complete everything, but get something presentable. And I mean, if you really want to like nail it out of the park, if you can do something like, create a semi-popular NPM module if you're into JavaScript or, you know, something equivalent if you're in another language. Um, if you can work on an open source project that gets a lot of stars or is used quite often, something that you can put your name on that has some backing behind it, it's really impressive on a resume. Also, important note for side projects, it's usually a good idea to document pretty much every aspect of them, uh, either as you go or just like general documentation. Um, because that is something that comes in very handy uh, in the real world of development. Um, I, th- I think it's super cool, TechSquid TV, that you wrote like a tutorial as you're learning it. Um, and nice. Um, yeah, like I, I think about doing that sometimes, but it, I think that makes so much sense just from a like how your learning how your learning process works is like. If I were to write a tutorial about like a for loop, like I wouldn't have the same questions and like uncertainty about it as when I first learned it. Um, so, so I just think that's like a cool, cool method and something I don't, I don't do enough. So yeah, it's really you know. So everyone learns differently. I, I'd love to hear how some of you learn. I, I, act, I prefer to learn from videos, but quite often I find that. A lot of, you know, I don't, I'm not going to name any specific channels or anything like that, but I, I just feel like a lot of the channels that have better knowledge in them, better information, don't always present that information very well. Uh, so sometimes it's hard to absorb it. And if, uh, if you can just make something less scary to understand for someone that, and make it more digestible information, there's a very good chance, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's someone I will name because yeah. they're excellent. The New Boston is a is a, oh, is a cool. great channel, and I've learned tons from them. The if, if someone's repping him in the chat. Um, nice. And there are plenty nice. of channels out there that are 
that are they, they have excellent information but but they're just completely unwatchable yeah yeah there was um i can never remember the name of it a react tutorial uh that the this I, I think guy individual who does these youtube tutorials on web dev did a reddit web dev ama um he has a react tutorial that like i learned react in like three hours i mean basic react but it was it was awesome really really loved it yeah, I wanted to touch up on uh, side projects uh, on the question that TGP asked. If you are concerned about putting projects in your portfolio, don't do not be misguided by the misconception that's you know around the internet that you should only be putting projects that you've been paid for on your portfolio. You should put whatever you deem is presentable on your portfolio and make sure as as um. I think Gmem uh, said about documentation. Make sure you document it well, because at the end of the day, when you show that off to a potential um, to a potential employer of yours, um, they're gonna read through that and they're for sure gonna pull that from your GitHub repository and try to run it on their own machine to see what uh, if it actually works as you've claimed it in the docs. So make sure it's presentable. Just have confidence about it, and you know. You're gonna you're gonna get there. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I, I the last time we had this discussion, uh, I just we were talking about how sometimes people overinflate their their projects, and that may work well in the short term, but in the long term, that can be a, a problem too. Yeah, I've seen people. Uh, I mean, oversell their abilities in interviews. I've now that I'm on the other side of the table, it's sort of sort of funny it's yeah, yeah. it's like this startup blah 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 and it's like oh it like you, it's some way of using the google maps api and yeah. it's like not a business or like yeah 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 it's and the, the the sad thing is is when someone's trying to, to snowball me and i can tell and right right and that's like the don't hire the asshole um, yeah. check that you yeah, don't it's, uh, so, <laughs> a couple years back when I didn't have the, uh, the say, and I had to just, I could only advise the hiring person and they hired someone that, well, technically it wasn't a hire. It was a, it was a contract. It was a, it, it was a working interview was what it was. We hired a guy for working interview, which meant that he came Absolutely. to the office, worked on a project, a simple project. And we paid him for his time, and we evaluated based off of his work if we should hire him. I said, no, don't hire this guy. This guy was dodgy. And it's so weird not to make hiring decisions unanimously as like a company. Like, yeah. how do you bring someone on when someone, someone on your no. team that you trust has like a legitimate concern with that person? Well, they didn't. From, they didn't. Like, uh, professional environment well, that's crazy. They, didn't, they didn't trust me then the, the, the project manager was an ass but and he had he had the final say this project manager he didn't know anything technical he thought he could do my job by watching what i did from behind my shoulder which was insulting he actually said that he said the same thing to the designers he says i could i could be a the designers laughed at his face when he said this he said i could be a creative director i watched you do over your shoulders i know what you're doing all right. Well, let's let's keep moving. Um, but, I don't want to uh, dig into like first, you know, personal people too much. All right. I apologize. Go ahead. Uh, all good. 
Um, just want to save you from getting in trouble. <laughs> um, on the uh, the kind of first topic of finding clients, um, I'm curious if if anyone else um, has anything to weigh in on with some personal experience. Knock on doors. Knock on a lot of doors. I know it sounds old-fashioned. I got more leads, temporary work, contract work, clients by driving around and knocking on doors than I have, you know, trying to use uh, LinkedIn, trying to uh, use Guru, trying to uh, trying to network online. I found that going out in person with a big box full of uh, portfolios I had and just hanging them out that they, they were they were digital portfolios they were on CD back then which tells you how long ago this was but I had so much more luck you know beating feet stomping on doors you know than any attempt at digital networking yeah that that makes sense flyers um, <laughs> also reaching out especially if it's your first gig to a web development shop um, whether it's a big one or a little one, that for me, like I would um, be worried about picking up a project, giving them a quote, like, oh yeah, three thousand dollars, I can build this website, um, and then just like not being able to deliver on it because it was my first time doing it, and um, I threw online chat uh, IRC channel um like 10 10 years ago freenode um met someone who's super nice and brought me into their office to help them finish and work on a project and it was a project that they were in the middle of the previous dev um just like didn't know what they were doing built like an awful awful pro product out of this um, development framework and then they they brought me in um and gave me like a decent hourly rate um and i met them completely online in, in like an anonymous um cake php chat room um and they brought me in for whatever three-week project it was and then uh cut me loose but that was a great way to gain a lot of experience i gained a, a ton of experience through that short job um and a lot of the li liability was off of me like they knew only what to like only so much to expect from me they already had this project it was already in motion and they were in the process of finishing it so so that worked out great for me um not sure if that's totally like a repeatable or or scalable um process where uh but to to ben's point um getting in touch with these like local web development shops like doing the same thing instead of saying i want to find a restaurant on Main Street and my town name do like I want to find a web development shop like Main Street my town name and like yeah you could um, pull a power move um, and pitch to change their website around like here's how I change your website here's what's wrong with your SEO um, that could work <laughs> unless the guys nephew made the website you made it yeah yeah hey when it comes to business it really doesn't matter who made the website if it's not getting clicked on and someone's uh, going to need to make that business case to them i've <laughs> i've tried making that business case like i said hey. i've seen too much 
where someone is just so if it's all cause, you is... have to know when to walk away too. I mean, if they don't want to improve their business, then they don't want to improve their business. But that's you know that, and that's, that's not like, your fault totally. or your problem. But uh, if you know if they were serious about business, they would improve their website. Absolutely, I agree with you, Tech. Um, cool. What, yeah, has anyone um, tried like finding bigger uh, dev shops to to join up with? GMEM, isn't that kind of your current situation? You were doing freelance for a while, and now you're with a, a bigger uh, company? I mean, sort of. I wasn't doing freelance full-time because I was still technically in school. Um, cool. Cool. But for a while there, uh, I was doing freelance um, to a certain degree. Um, yeah, and then I just joined up with the, the company that I'm currently with, and so far it's been pretty smooth sailing. Yeah, and, and then you don't have to necessarily worry about getting clients or that client pipeline. Like that's kind of um, a benefit too. Yeah, for sure. They've already got clients lined up. They've you know full sales team. So I just I can just uh, you know take on tasks and start building stuff. Yeah, you can't like be expected to just start um, doing everything. Um, so like. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, what, what, like, what's the end game of a web developer? Like, is it to be like a super freelancer? And this is kind of like a personal question if anyone wants to share their thoughts. Um, to be like a super freelancer, to grow their freelancing business into like a dev and design shop, um, to learn enough skills to translate web development into other businesses, like, Maybe there's a medical device website thing that someone always has wanted to build. Um, and this is like a means to that end. Um, kind of the third one more so for me, but. Uh, game for me is being in, in charge of a team, being a being in charge of a team, having some sort of directorial type title. Mm -hmm. I, I would rather, you know, get to the point where I don't have to rely on the fact that I code damn fast anymore. Just uh, the fact that I have uh, a wealth of knowledge and experience and able to impart that on juniors and let them do the, do the heavy lifting while I handle the more uh, administrative stuff. I, that's, that's my end goal is to be a leader. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Kind of following what Ben said, I, I do kind of, my end goal is it's kind of two things really. One of them is to become more of a senior uh, developer um, and kind of make the bigger decisions on on projects and spend maybe a little bit less time coding and more time thinking through problems and breaking them down uh, and assigning them to people who um, either specialize in that or uh, are just looking for things to do. Um, and then my second goal is just kind of uh, being able to work on whatever I want to work on and not have to worry about uh, uh, money and stuff like that and just... Um, you know, working on open source projects, uh, but that's kind of a uh, a moonshot. So, super cool. I have one more question regarding the um, like uh, starting out thing. So, cool. what cool. type Thanks of for getting back to us? No problem. Um, what type of price? Like, how do you decide on a price when you're just starting out? Like, 
Um, you said you'd probably uh, give a lower price for like a, if you reach out to a restaurant or something to help make a better website. Right? But how how do you like decide how much to charge, especially if you're just sure? I have some I have some thoughts on that, and then um, someone yep. else can can jump in. But I think it's like in a way you're you're building a brand of yourself and. I think the reason why you may ever um, offer, offer a smaller price is because there's kind of some unspoken and hard to quantify uncertainty about your ability to execute on this compared to say like the, what the market rate of something is. So if you're shooting to build out 50 um, supermarket websites or whatever, um, and the first one you want to like offer at half the price, you're still getting like 15, like it's only um, a very small, dis it's only like a 1% discount out of that 50. So that's one way to do it. Um, and then also when you're actually like getting in and setting the price, um, maybe some more specifics would help. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, a tough dance, um, but you have to, kind of way between offering like a reasonable um, approximate hourly rate and having a reasonable amount of time that a project will take. And keep in mind that the person you're pitching to may be more flexible on knowing how long it takes to build a seven page website with blah, 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 blah. Um, and then in general though, I, I think it does make a little more sense to offer things as a, a package so it will cost three thousand dollars two hundred dollars two hundred thousand dollars um to build this website um and kind of put it in that way and also make the recipient of that quote feel comfortable that you're yeah. offering and putting together a price that's fair um both understanding that you're not throwing just like all the extras, all the bells and whistles into it. Um, you know, like the used car salesman at the end cliche. And also that you do at the same time need to eat and like pay bills and make a profit um, to some extent to just keep things alive. And that's just like the way the world works. So that's yeah. sort of how I go about it a bit. Um, yeah, anyone else? Do you have any input on like, uh on what a reasonable price might be, like whether it's hourly or for the whole project or what? Or is it like something that totally depends on the website and the restaurant, et cetera? I think it depends mostly on the client um, because yeah. they can have different expectations of quality. Like if it was um, your aunt's nonprofit who like just is getting started, um, and you quote her like 200 bucks and you put a good amount of effort into it, you know, like everyone's happy in that scenario. If it's, yeah. uh, if it's Petco and it's their corporate homepage, like they're going to be worried if it's not at least $3 million. Like, what do you mean we're replacing our, our current homepage with something that only costs a hundred thousand dollars? <laughs> um, yeah. So, so almost it depends on the, the project and the customer. I think, um, another way of looking at it is to just say, Hey, I'm going to charge an hourly rate. And it's kind of the same thing. Like 
it's really what the market will bear on that. Um, yeah. And, and again, if anyone else has any thoughts. The one thing you have to keep in mind, definitely, when you think about quoting for jobs like this, is the fact that there might not be a way to accurately and completely sell to uh, to a client because you might find that it's harder, much harder to make that uh, make that argument saying, "Hey, you know, this is why I'm worth this much to a client." If you're spending more energy trying to sell yourself to a client, you really need to just move on to the next client because because lots of people, small businesses especially, they don't understand what 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 we do and how much it's worth and to them it's it's all it's all uh, magic boxes and stuff and they see you typing on a keyboard and it's like oh they're just typing on a keyboard and and that perception is hard to break especially if you're dealing with older customers baby boomers especially it's hard and you always have to look at that cost analysis of because the time that you spend to sell to a client you might not see it but it's there as as the overall cost of a client and if you're and if that cost is getting too high just trying to sell because they're wishy-washy and you have that feeling oh they're almost there they're almost ready to sign on but it takes way too long cut them cut them loose and spend your energy elsewhere because i've met mm -hmm. lots of freelancers that spent too much time courting people who are wishy-washy or try to haggle too much and and the client like should understand the value that a new website or whatever feature that you're building should bring to them like in a way in a good kind of client like they should be sophisticated enough to already maybe have a profit stream coming in through their website already understand if even if they're a mom and pop dry cleaner that okay yeah yelp is good um i get some business from Yelp. Um, I understand that having my own website helps with the internet thing and kind of sell them almost on the extra revenue associated with marketing. So like in that scenario, maybe you can convince them that the cost of the website, think of that as a $3,000 investment into marketing their like corner dry cleaner, um, so something like that. And so you're selling both your time, but also like, why is it that you're interested in being a web developer? It's because like the web is important. Well, okay, if the web is important, how does that help this small mom and pop dry cleaner? And it's almost like that connection um, should exist within your uh, social contract between why you're doing the service and why this business wants or needs a new website. Um, and, and that, that just as a tool to kind of help with your sales. And then, uh, the other back to the, that earlier question is somewhat related is it's, um, easier to go to these other companies and say, Hey, th this dry cleaner on third street, um, they really got a lot of benefit out of, um, me updating their website or me managing their Yelp portfolio. Um, their Yelp page. So if they're asking or pushing back on price, um, it's another social proof that you can use to have built a cohort of somewhat 
relevant or related or even like directly competitive clients. Like it's almost the best scenario where you're a, a neutral broker offering a good or service to a competitive business where once you get yeah. one of these first customers, and even if you do that at a discount, you can now kind of like wave that contract in the face of all their competitors. And they're like, wait a second, like old Joe down the street, um, my, I'm kind of thinking of spots in my neighborhood, but um, old Joe dry cleaner down the street or Betty's hair salon, she's on the internet now and you brought her there. Well, I want to do that. Like she's not one upping me. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what they are using in sales with like insurance companies. Um, hmm. So what's a good way, like let's say you find uh, a restaurant or whatever that you, uh, and you see that they have a pretty bad website that could definitely be better. What's uh, the best way to like reach out to them? To send an email saying that like, uh, like highlighting the flaws in their website and like explaining how you can uh, make it better. Well, ben, ben, uh, ben told us his um, his thoughts. Go, yeah, go right. There. Well, I think first off, you should pre-qualify the client. You, if it's a restaurant or the or a directly or a service company like that, look at their overall uh, web presence because if they have overall good to great reviews, that means they're doing some things right. You don't want to pitch your services to a business that has nothing but one and two star reviews because then, you know, these people most likely are assholes. Yeah. I, I know that, I know it's a generalization, but there's some truth to that. You want to also uh, look and see if they have any sort of savviness, because if you have to spend half your time trying to, convince them of your worth they're always going to tr try to under uh, undercut you and always try to uh, squeeze more out of you than you're willing to do so look at see something that tells you that they understand the at least in one aspect or one uh, vector that they understand the cost and the worth of digital see if they have a good social media presence see if they See if they do anything online at all. If they just have a shitty website, but they have a good social media presence, then that means they understand the value of digital. At least in that, in that one point, it's easier to educate them. Because if you're dealing with someone who has a great restaurant, but, they don't, but they're, a, they're a boomer and they don't understand the value of digital at all, then you're going to be in for a, he for a ton of headaches. Mm. Just caught the end of that. I was refilling my coffee, but that that's yeah, like you want to choose your clients. Um <laughs> you don't want like an uphill um uphill battle and and they don't want that either. All right, any other questions? And then there was some there was one uh question I wanted to switch to, but happy to hang on this a bit longer. Um if anyone has any questions about freelance, um maybe business sales, if you're like a web app, a web startup, um, hire it. Yeah, any, anything like that um, before we switch off. Or their own stories. Um, I might have a question about hosting with uh, clients. Like, um, say you develop a website for a client. Um, is it a good Why idea we'll to, to, uh, to host the website for the client? Or should you 
should you leave the hosting to the client himself? Yeah, I think we can probably move on to that uh, next topic that you had in mind. That's a super, that's a super interesting idea. I, well, I think it's sort of related to like how you like close clients and stuff and well, on the business my, side. This is my opinion on that. Uh, use a use a uh, reseller. Like uh, I do a lot of WordPress sites, so Flywheel is perfect because Flywheel you can white label it. You're, you're not hosting the site. Flywheel is hosting the site. They're paying Flywheel directly, and you get a little 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 piece of the action. Uh, you you aren't support for them by doing that because if you're doing any, if you touch if you touch their hosting, like let's say they have a GoDaddy host. Or a or a dream host host or Bluehost or any of those others ones that aren't as uh, modular and uh, hands off as Flywheel or Pantheon or WP Engine, you're gonna find yourself in situations where every time something goes wrong, because you went into a C panel or something, you own it now. Even if you don't own that host thing, you own it now. And you'll get calls on Christmas Day saying, "Hey, I've been messing with the site today, and this happened." Yeah, I would. I guess it it depends. It could be a huge cost um, center to say, I'm going to manage it. I'm going to host it, um, and you get support with that to some degree. And it's four hundred dollars a month or four hundred dollars a year, um, and that support is limited to like two hours a month or something like that. And beyond that, you have a hourly that's like aggressive or something to force them to negotiate and figure out what it is they really want and and how to move it so so it's either you could totally hand off the site completely um and just be like yeah here's um you know here, your dev team can deal with that or a flywheel and do kind of like a partial take a bit of it or make it like an ongoing support um and, and that's a way of charging like just price wise like three thousand dollars start a, a flat for building the website and then maybe 600 a year to host it um just totally making numbers out and totally um yeah, but i, I always thought it was a a nice way to like i don't know uh even possibly build a better relationship with the client and uh i yeah, don't know course, make, course, make a nice on the side yeah they, they don't want to depending on who you're reaching out to i think there's kind of this less uh, whatever, like fancy, less sophisticated customer of um, they have a local store, small business. They they just want to turn money into like solving problems or more money. So it can be a good revenue center. But I don't know if anyone does that. I'm not sure what kind of the norm is um, for that. Um, yeah. Let's sit. Syntag has uh, been asking some great questions on the chat. I have to admit, I've kind of fallen a little behind on, on reading all this. Um, oh, cool, web branding agency. Um, do you have access to a mic by any chance, Syntag? No worries. Um, OK, cool. Um, yeah, so his, his first question was around kind of I think, and I'm just going to paraphrase and summarize that it's a medium scale um, web development, web and branding agency. And he's responsible currently for all the sales and is looking to scale up the sales department. Um, that's sort of the, the premise of it. 
I think. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's a super good question. And it's like what we've been fielding so far is from like you're at stage zero um, and how to go about blanketing and reaching out to these these mom and pop stores, these smaller businesses to get a name for yourself. Then you're a bit further on and this is kind of where Syntag is. And I was alluding big picture to if you're doing this business planning, think about also where you are in five years, 20 years. Um, so this is kind of like a, what do you do when you're in the middle um, sort of question? And it's also personnel related. So I think um, we can we can try and tackle it. Uh, maybe not spend too long on it, but kind of throw it out to anyone. Yeah. So what's the question again? There's a medium-sized web and branding agency with one person full-time responsible for all their sales. And he wants to scale the sales side of things, whether by bringing in more people and whether they're a seat. I think he's thinking about a more of a sales support type of person, like in a sales assistant type um, of role. Personal and, opinion yeah, based off of my experience, uh, bringing in people for sales and, and you're that small, you want to bring in people who, who, who are on a commission basis because I've worked for a small agency before where they had, they brought in a salesperson that was a bullshitter. He claimed that he worked for pe people he didn't and the owner was so impressed with them that he gave him a salaried sales position, and in, in, in the eight months that he was with us, he didn't close a single sale. Wow. That makes a lot of sense, yeah, because people can talk the talk, but like, how do you, how do you really vet them? How do you really know? Um, and he wasn't in a hurry to make there. sales either because he was salary. I mean, I know yeah. it sounds cruel because we all like to have steady money, but when you're small and you're hiring salespeople, you know, make a commission. Yeah, you could probably bring people on as contractors um, and kind of pitch the role to them as outside sales. You'll get a commission. And if you can keep wrapping things up, like you'll bring them on and make the commission larger when they're full, full time, something like that. Um, yeah, that that's kind of speaks to how to scale in a way that's that's safe, I guess, like um, from a, a money perspective. <laughs> um, like you want to bring people on, but you want to test if they're a good fit and do that in a low pressure or at least like, yeah, low pressure sort of way. And um, yeah, sell, scaling, selling, scaling sales is, is tough. You have to kind of keep throwing humans at the problem and kind of have a lot of churn. I, I think that's how I've seen it done best. So unfortunately it looks like our, our message is bring people on, but don't get too attached to them. <laughs> yeah. They're goldfish. It won't last long. Yeah. And then um, I think otherwise um, kind of just when you're focused on one side of things, you always want to, uh, focus on everything else too. So if you are finding your sales isn't isn't going as fast as you'd like, focus on kind of every other part of the business that addresses your sales funnel. Um, maybe all your marketing copy needs a refresh. Like does your website 
fully explain what you do. Um, if you're you built your website a year ago or two years ago and and you're a web development company, like your process has probably changed and improved in the last year or two. Maybe it's worth rethinking that. Maybe some clients just aren't impressed by your two-year-old website anymore and you need to go in and, and hit it. Maybe there's something about your sales cycle that, that you can think about. Are you waiting too long? Is a certain part of your sales cycle um, fixable? Is it too long? Um, why are customers saying no? Is it price? Is it, what, is it the offering? Can you be doing more? Can you make these deals bigger? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, some things like that. To kind of change gears totally, um, what are, oh, Syntax typing, let's give him one chance, one, one sec to, all great answers, thank you, he says. Cool, cool. Yeah, thanks for asking the question. I think that was, that was awesome. Um, cool. Uh, so someone asked earlier, um, what are the cool, what technologies are you using in 2019? Um, I think that's a good refreshing change from how do you sell? <laughs> um, what are you building with? Um, what are you hacking with? What are you moving away from? What are you afraid of? What are you moving towards? Um, there's some PHP. Uh, can I also? Yeah, definitely. You have the floor. Uh, I recently started using React with TypeScript um, uh, and using Webpack with that, of course. Um, I recently uh, learned about code splitting as well uh, and lazy loading. Um, getting TypeScript to work with React was quite a challenge, actually, because um, React and Redux just uh, have a really... Uh, I don't know, dynamic design, I suppose, that work well with JavaScript and work well without uh, types. Um, so, so using types was kind of a pain, actually, and it invo involves a lot of boilerplate code. So, um, but they're all really interesting technologies, and um, I really prefer TypeScript over JavaScript nowadays. So uh, yeah, that's what I'm working with right now. That's awesome. I yeah, I um, haven't taken the plunge on on TypeScript yet. I'm feeling the motivation to from your comment, Sam. And there's two commenters saying plus one TypeScript. Uh, someone else is asking a question, but one uh, one more vote for it. Um, I. Cool. Does anyone else, um, let's kind of keep the funnel open. Does anyone else want to share what they're using before we start discussing a little more? It's all about okay. JavaScript. Tune Warrior, what, what um, frameworks or apps are, are you using? I didn't hear anything. Oh, cool. He's uh, commenting vanilla JavaScript alongside React. Cool. I've been using React for something, and I wanted to... I have a question about it, um, but I don't want to totally derail the conversation. Um, yeah, I'm starting to use React 2, uh, React also, rather. Um, what's React 2? Um, and I've also been taking a look at React Native. I think it's super cool that you're building a JavaScript app, like when you're using React, that can also be used to make native apps. 
I think that's super exciting and it makes me, yeah, like feel like it's cooler, like what you're doing with React. Um, I was I was slow to get on board to the JavaScript um, MVC apps um, because I was using server-side MVC apps, but yeah, I guess like web browsers are faster than they used to be now. I'm not using Postgres on the back end. Um, I'm I'm still using MySQL. Nothing wrong with MySQL. Nothing Never wrong at all. Throw it away. Throw it away. I, as I, long as you follow the, you know, if you take security security overall, uh, I mean, if you focus on security above everything with MySQL, I, I believe you can still use it to great effect. But I am regarding SQL, even though I pretty much only use NoSQL database databases as my daily solution for storing and manipulating data. Um, Postgres is absolutely amazing for a, a SQL database solution to learn nowadays. Well, yeah. Anything's better than Mongo. It's interesting you brought up security with MySQL. Do you, do you mean like, because MySQL has really weird like rules where it will take sort of invalid or undefined queries and try to return stuff anyway that that can cause security issues? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> got it. Got it. Huh. It, it behaves in a in a really in a really weird way. If you, you know, we have we discuss this policy that the user is always right, and that's true. If you did not sanitize your input and you accidentally leave <laughs> something that's potentially malicious to go into the query and it gets executed, you you might just end up returning an entire you know table of data that you should not be seeing. Or um, a uh, in, or an end of character line in a. Uh, in a <laughs> oh yeah, that's the funniest one. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I actually have a, I, I, I actually have some good MySQL stories. Once we're at the dumb developer story uh, part of the show. Nice. I, I've had issues with MySQL and MariaDB and Percona DB like seg faulting and crashing on me. Um, and I find Postgres to be a lot, lot, lot saner, um, to manage from an ops perspective. And so for scalability of the service, I find Postgres to be better than MySQL. And the discussion of databases, we did mention ArangoDB, uh, a few episodes prior and working with it for the past Two weeks, I'd say. I think that it really deserves a lot of attention. Uh, it's it's such a underrated database solution, in my opinion. It works just flawlessly. What do you think of Maria? I never used it. Uh, I sick faulted it. <laughs> it's um, a, it's a MySQL fork, so. Yeah, I was like using MySQL for analytics, which is like not a good idea, and running nightly um, ETLs into it, and it would just consistently crash overnight. Um, but you know, we were kind of stressing the limits of the machine in terms of the amount of memory that it had, hard drive space, and all that. But it was it was just broadly frustrating, um, and it could have just been I had a 
generally frustrating problem to deal with, but um, the the team over time migrated that to some Postgres, kind of a mixed model, Vertica, um, Redshift. Um, well, that, if yeah. You were frustrated. Imagine how the database. <laughs> yeah, the database just gave up. <laughs> um, what the hell is this thing, this guy telling me to do? Oh my God. I can't fit that in here. Shadow Path, were you the one who first mentioned OrangoDB or did you hear about it from a mention and then started using it? I heard it from a mention. Uh, oh. I did bring it up. I did bring it up on episode one. Ever oh, since cool. that, I was just hooked. And it's it's a wire protocol compatible version of MongoDB. Is that correct? If we put it as simple as it gets, um, ArangoDB is a NoSQL solution, but it does integrate uh, SQL type queries, which is amazing. It it makes it makes working with uh, from um, the backend perspective, it just makes makes work so much easier compared to like writing entire models uh, in Mongo or just, you know, messing around with a bunch of data from a collection. This just lets you, you know, write a simple query, sanitize your input and call it a day. It, it's just so reliable. That's cool. And I'm, I'm on their website now. It says it has like built-in cluster mode. Have you had a chance to use any um, multi-server um, implementations of it? Uh, not yet, but I'm planning to do so in the near future. Uh, it's it's a great concept. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you cut it out there. I, I didn't get you there. Oh, I was, um, yeah, I don't know how well talking over someone works on this, especially. Um, I was saying <laughs> that that sounds exciting. You've been working on this app for a bit, and you're looking forward to scaling it up on on multiple hosts. That's That's pretty cool on Postgres. I don't have that to look forward to so easily. Oh, I'm sorry. I just realized my mic was open all the time. Yeah, uh, Arango does allow for a lot of flexibility, and it it retains, even though it allows for that, it retains its rigidity and and, and the sake of security. They really did uh, put in a lot of thought into it uh, because it pro it provides essentially built in uh, a built in um, uh, data sanitization, and it. Just doesn't does doesn't need a lot a, a lot of additional uh, logic added to it to make it such a um, safe and uh, let's just put it a secure solution for storing pretty sensitive data. That's cool. So it, it's been around since two thousand twelve, which is is cool. Yeah, it's a sh it's it's really a shame that people are not aware of that. A lot of people are not aware of Orango. It's it's something I would recommend for anyone to give a shot. And it's really beginner friendly. I actually find it more beginner friendly than Mongo in a lot of cases. Nice. I'm 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 convinced. <laughs> yeah, just again, I think we touched on this before. Mongo has issues. Yeah, I do agree. I'm absolutely on uh, on the train with well, on your train of thought with Mongo, not sometimes doing its intended work with, by not inserting documents into collections. But I think that will be that will be most certainly fixed in future releases. But that I have, have been fixed yeah, like a long time ago. 
I, I mean, it, it's it, we're talking about we're talking about saving to the database. Uh, the the first function of a database is to say that the second function is to read the data you save. If you can't do the first function, why why are you calling your project mature? True, but I still love it. It doesn't love you back. It's an abusive relationship. Walk away. <laughs> I think when it comes to databases, you're, it's all about your use case. Um, you've got to think about what are you wanting to do in particular, because um, I think in some scenarios, uh, a NoSQL solution, whether it be Mongo or something else, avoiding those abusive relationships, um, could be a better solution for speed and maybe just fast writes over, say, what you might need as a relational database uh, where you need all that interconnectivity and SQL-esque like ways of getting data. Um, and I, I haven't looked at um, ArangoDB, but if it's trying to at least simplify the SQL approach, um, it may still not be the right solution if it's a NoSQL under the hood. Um, but again, it's all down to your use case um, and... You know, maybe some some bench benchmarking that could be done as well, just to verify if it's going to do what you need to do quickly. Their their website's pretty cool. I like the design of it. Like totally unrelated to whether you should use the database or not. <laughs> 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 the design of the websites. Um, I personally haven't really found any use cases for NoSQL. Um, I don't know. Every time I try to use one of them, I always come back to a, to a relational database. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's um, yeah. yeah, for me, like it's it's the NoSQL was appealing from a JSON structure perspective, but now that MySQL and um, you know Postgres most definitely support JSON column types, um, I've not really had much of a need to go to a NoSQL solution. Um, the, use, the use cases are still very different, but to be able to store JSON data in a column and then you know, go, go flexibly horizontal with that data um, is, is quite powerful. Uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of Postgres um, most recently, uh, but I was a very strong MySQL advocate before that. Mm. I think the biggest difference, like, it's almost overblown, like the actual schema structure. Um, there can be some serious downsides. Like if you want to add a column to a large MySQL table, like God bless you, good luck. Um, not really the same on like a MongoDB. Like each row um, has its own sense of the schema, but it doesn't enforce it. And I think that's something that maybe your programming language can help you with or, or hinder you too, but there's more these like feature questions, like can you join efficiently and effectively from one row to another row, probably in a different table based on an ID? And mm. I feel like when we talk about relational or NoSQL, that feature, ex that feature's existence or not is like important. And I see that ArangoDB has like a checkbox with that and claims that, th that it works also like a graph database type tool. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm super interested in this. I'm going to check it out. I do believe the most appropriate case to actually go for a NoSQL solution if, if, is if you really want to have something that's going to be 
scalable on an amazing level. As you said, it it can be a true pain in the well, sorry for my language again, pain in the ass to add another column to such a large collection of data and, and a SQL solution. Whilst in Mongo, you can essentially just pull a document out, add another property to it as a regular object in JavaScript, and then just pull it, push it back into the database. I'm sorry, into collection and, you know, call it a day. Hmm. There's something cool on Hacker News this morning. Um, someone wrote a Redis-like server in Python 3. And they, um, it's, it's the subset of Redis that's fully supported by the benchmarking script, uh, <laughs> which is like a cool um, use case. Um, sure, I'll, I'll link in a, a sec. Um, and the, their point was that speed-wise, it's like pretty close. I think Redis was 50% faster or something like that. Um, but Redis is written in C. Um, so, uh, Kind of when it when it comes to it, I in a previous uh, career line of work, a company w built a sort of custom NoSQL database, real time stats engine that, in essence, kind of took what that post started with, like a a network server that's written in Python that talks on some kind of simpleish protocol and changes its state. Um, and stores a lot of that state as Python objects. Um, and so that's, you know, I mean, a, another option. <laughs> I've seen lots of people try to get around uh, the uh, inherent issues that most databases have. And some try some really wacky solutions. Well, I forgot the name of it. Maybe one of you guys know it. I remember one guy, so he set up a project where he tried to create a, a, a database system yeah, this is pretty wacky too. I couldn't believe that this, this guy did it. I can't believe it got any traction. But this guy set up a, a, a database system where it was a JSON file where, uh, yes, it was a JSON file where he actually had a uh, script of some sort where he hashed the data in the JSON file and he had a script running that grabbed the hashed information, unhash it, and serve it up. And I, I saw this monstrosity. I'm like, what the hell are you thinking? It sounds like a good good coder. <laughs> it's my style. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so this like Python code is 300 lines of code. 232 lines of code is the program. And I was starting to look at it and I think I can optimize the get function at least um, a bit faster. And yeah, this is like kind of your own makings of the start of how you'd build like a custom a custom database. Um, mm. Something while we're just on the subject of kind of more aggressive ways of, of treating your data, a feature I actually use a lot with Postgres that helps um, make data like ETLs and data transformations um, a lot more sane and reasonable is using Python functions inside of Postgres. So I have these basic NLP functions um, that I take a tweet and I figure out what are the most common phrases like in this tweet or something like that, but transforming it 
from one format to another format or, or passing in, actually it's a method where you pass in thousands of tweets and it comes up with like a word cloud out of it. Um, and so that's done using Python's NLTK library, just like the totally like recommended way of doing it in Python. But my web app is written in PHP and my data is stored in Postgres, but it's kind of like concisely arranged inside of Postgres in a function name. Mm. Um, so that's, that's one kind of like more advanced way of using Postgres to incorporate awesome open source Python libraries into transforming your data. And then ultimately you can serve it to like a, almost like almost not quite static front end where the more analysis and transformations that you push into your database layer, the less you have to worry about it on the other end. So like your, your PHP app or your MVC app more just thinks of, hey, I want the top trending phrases or the top whatever. Um, and then your database, that's a long function in your database, or maybe there's some extra libraries that you're calling into from your database. Mm. I got some SQL stories if we have time, or, de or is that be a de derailment? Listening. <laughs> what? Oh, I'm, I'm listening. What do you got? Uh, okay, these are Dan's stories, by the way, just a warning. Um, well, I, I, I think I told you that the company used Fox Pro as its main backbone. Uh, the, the data we had from the clients got to the point where it was too big. Uh, FoxPro has a hard limit on its database size of two gigabytes. So what uh, Dan wrote, instead of all of a sudden being in a hurry to migrate off of FoxPro onto something more robust and modern, uh, Dan decided that the best thing to do was to create a SQL database. He called SQL Squirrel, by the way. Never heard anyone call SQL Squirrel in my life. Um, so Dan, Dan decided the best thing to do was create to house all the data on SQL. And every time anyone does anything with a FoxPro function, it uh, queries the SQL database and grabs a cursor. And that caused performance issues, as you can imagine. Yeah, cursors are tough. Like, come on, just figure it out, Mr. Computer. Yeah, <laughs> Mrs. Computer. Yeah, it, well, I didn't get to the, the worst part about the data because uh, Dan read somewhere, I don't know where because I, I, I could never find this as, as a statement. Dan read somewhere that uh, computers like reading t tables that are that are wider than they are tall. So all of a sudden, one day he, he had in his head, he started, he, started, he started pivoting all the tables. Oh, <laughs> what? Yeah. Like literally transposing the the yeah. array, yeah. Because he he heard that there was a performance increase on tables that were wider than they were tall, oh. and and he started pivoting all the tables. It's like a Dilbert um, situation. <laughs> I, I I swear to God, this happened. Like on on production, just like doing it live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah, yeah, yeah. All the tables. <laughs> It, I, I could not believe it. What is that? Like, I don't know if that even makes sense. I've never heard it anywhere else in my life. Because I always assumed that 
data is data. It doesn't matter if it's tall or wide. It's still the same <laughs> amount of bits read by a program. I mean, is it... I can think of... I can try and think of a scenario that sort of makes sense. Like, um, let's say there's... I don't know, you, you, you're building, um, like, action figures or something. And <laughs> you have, like, a items table or something like that. And each action figure has three items associated with it. So in, that, in one scenario, you have three rows, like, item one, item two, item three, and, like, the item attribute associated with the, fi the action figure or something like that. You could transform that where you just have one row about the action figure and there's like item one, item two, item three. Uh, the problem is the data we were using wasn't structured like that at all. Like, the, data we were, the data we were using, let, let's, I'm, I'm going to not give enough information for you to find out which company this is, thankfully. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's say that there are appointments where you have the, uh, the, uh, the appointee's name, uh, the date of their appointment, their email address, uh, and details on their appointment from how much they're paying to what services they're getting at their appointment. And we're getting all that data. And that's not a table you should really be pivoting. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. I mean, I've never... Is this or MySQL? This, 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 was, uh, this was MySQL, or as he called it, Squirrel. Yeah, that's amazing. My scroll. Yeah, he called the squirrel. Yeah, yeah, it's a <laughs> my squirrel. Yeah, he called the squirrel. It's a, I, I, and uh, it was it was amazing. It got to the point where they gave me they gave me access to to the SQL Server to make changes in the data itself because stuff was so fucked up with what Dan was doing. It was it was it was actually magical. Did did you say in that example he's taking it from a, a vertical um, schema and pivoting it horizontally? I'm I'm not too sure of the use case. Well, let's say that you have you have a table of data where you have like first name, last name, phone number, email address, services, etc. as as the header row, and then you have all the data in there like John Smith, etc. You know, just a picture picture a regular tape data table. A oh. picture of him pivoting at 90 degrees. I can't. <laughs> My brain won't permit that. <laughs> so, so you're saying he's turned it into a, a vertical key value solution instead? Yes. Because he oh, read okay. somewhere that I never was able to find that that uh, that uh, .NET processes that data faster. Yeah, definitely. Definitely not right. I mean, the only oh, reason why you would do that is if you wanted uh, to not have a uh, specific set horizontal schema where the, the key could be whatever you want uh, and you want that flexibility. Uh, for us, that's why we went Postgres because we didn't want to go vertical like that, but we needed that um, non-important, or at least pseudo-important, um, sometimes queryable, sometimes not queryable horizontal data. So we just did a JSON column instead and put all that in there, uh, and then kept every other important, always querying um, specific data in a column of its own. Uh, because we did actually kind of come from, originally, uh, with a product I'm working on, uh, a, a very vertical key value solution like that. And it was fast and flexible for our needs, 
but we were starting to get um, large data set problems. Mm. So well, there you found it more helpful to go from a wide table to a narrow table? Um, only because we needed flexibility, but the narrow table wasn't um, completely doing what Dan does in this example. Um, we we actually came from Dan's end, end solution where we had like a key value uh, table yeah, where everything uh -huh. was just wow. very vertical. Uh, and, we, and we converted that back down to just one row per full set of data. Uh, you fixed the Dan. Yeah, uh, I think that we probably fixed a Dan solution really in this case. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, Go well, the funny the, the funny thing is uh, they they created an index for all the databases we had. Uh, Dan created the index, I should say. I don't know how he created this index, but uh, 4 p.m. on Friday, there was like, okay, everyone shut down, work on non-critical stuff. We're indexing the tables, and it was a two-hour process every week. I wow. I, uh, what kind of volume of data were you dealing with? Yeah. Like, how many millions of records? Quite a few records. I mean, I, I got to be honest with you, there was a shit ton of data. I just yeah. also think that Dan was incompetent. Oh yeah. <laughs> so because, because because if you have a if you have a system stopping process, you don't do it during the workday. You set up a you set up an automated <laughs> job and have it do, done at like two a.m. Unless you sit writing and you have to be in the office when you do it so you can fix whatever happens every week. I have some, some code that I committed to PHP that sort of deals with wide tables in Postgres. Um, so I was doing a lot of analytics and uh, ad analytics uh, company, and we were using Postgres to transform our data um, and our tables were super wide. We were tracking like 100 metrics um, for each ad. And it was just like, we just kept adding metrics and not really deleting metrics. So even a lot of them weren't always applicable for this client or whatever. Um, but a lot of the fields were virtual, so the performance wasn't that much of an issue. But PHP, we found, was really really chugging really slow on making some of these queries. And we looked looked at logs and eventually were able to figure out that PHP was making a query, an additional query per, like 68 additional queries per query. So each column, PHP was like, hey, remind me like exactly about the type of this column. Um, so it was it was super slow through our dashboard, but quick through our API. Our API was written in Python. Our dashboard was written in PHP. We we're like, what the what the hell? Um, so we, me and another developer, um, dug through the source code to PHP um, and found the part of the code that is executing the Postgres query and is doing this lookup um, to understand. Uh, it was going from this types were, were enums. Um, so it would have a type as a big int, and it would know, OK, big ints are like 86 or 45 or something. And then it was doing another query to look up this number. So um, yeah, my uh, coworker kind of 
managed it more so, and, and his name's on the, the pull request on PHP. Um, and what we ended up doing was adding in just these checks. We filled in the most common scenarios for our Postgres queries um, and eventually got that pushed live. But kind of a weird gotcha on the, the PHP bindings um, for Postgres. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. Is that because of the PHP's flexibility on wanting to always not care so much about types, or at least at that stage, I'm assuming it might be a five something solution. Yeah, I think our our thinking at the time was just that PHP's MySQL bindings are have way more attention put into them, um, and just the Postgres bindings had this issue with with wider tables, and no one had come along and cleaned that code up yet. So we were just kind of um, the first, probably of many. I'm sure more people have touched that code since then. Um, but this that was kind of our fix um, for it. Well, let's That's ask cool. let's ask the room. Wide tables or tall tables? <laughs> Vote now. Optimal uh, table width is uh, <laughs> nine. No, no, I have some wide freaking tables. Um, I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> tall, wide. I don't really understand how it's like necessarily a trade-off. Like, the table should just grow infinitely and be like a finite width. I, well, we have two for wide, two for eggplant, <laughs> and one for tall. One for tall, three really for eggplant, four, four for, for eggplant. IDE. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if the if votes are in, table should be eggplant. <laughs> Uh, that was my poor man's um, polling solution, and it kind of had a lot of flaws. Well, well, you know what? This is, this, 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 this is just a version one. Uh, we'll, we'll send it back and, uh, and get some uh, get some user analysis on it. You can uh, you can work on the weekend and get uh, get the second version up uh, by the meeting on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> there, I even I can I know how to talk like a project manager. I'm feeling pressured to get it done now. Yeah. I, yeah. I honestly feel confused along with um, Syntag about what it is that we're um, debating. I think, honestly, I have to admit, Ben, I, I don't fully see the vision of the, the Dan table model. Definitely a failure of, of my own brain and okay. my understanding. Let me, uh, let me, let me, uh, you know, I'm going to create a very simple, uh, Table in Google Sheets really, really quickly, just just Perfect. so I can give you an example of what I mean and what of what I mean of of a regular table that that the company dealt with, just awesome. a regular standard Thanks. table. That's ideal. While while uh, while that's going on, Shadow Path, do you want to talk about your project? Well, since we were mentioning OrangoDB. Uh, a few moments ago, I want to touch on a project that I'm working on, which I've already talked about in previous episodes. Uh, it's called Sentinel. Sentinel is a is going to be a um, open source password manager. Uh, I didn't find any open source projects of that type, so I've decided to go up and create something along those lines. And it does use TypeScript and other bells and whistles that 
I could have done without, but it mainly revolves around um, Arango DB and put, trying to push its capabilities in regards to security and implementing other solutions like type checking using TypeScript to even further uh, sanitize inputs. Basically, it's just um, how it works is we are all familiar with um, traditional password managers using password um, master passwords in conjunction with your own uh, account password to you know log in. A master password is used to, um, of course, encrypt uh, your entries um, or uh, passwords that you add within your uh, let's call let's call them vaults or collection of passwords on your account. So Sedno basically just encrypts your passwords, keeps them safe within a really safe solution, database solution called Arango DB. Um, if you guys are interested, I would, um, especially you, Michael, since you are interested in um, checking into Arango, um, it's um, it's pretty simple. Uh, you can check out the database file in um, the uh, in the GitHub repo. You can uh, see what it's all about. Yeah, I'm, I'm in it actually. Database TypeScript, right? Exactly. Yeah, so I like created this really quick table just to show what the data was like pre-Dan. And to imagine post-Dan, like I said, <laughs> pivot at 90 degrees. That's what he was doing. I don't know what that means. <laughs> like it's just <laughs> like it's all John and then all Smith and then well, John Smith is just repeated as a placeholder. It could be anybody's name. So, like, once you pivot it, would the yeah. first row just be thirty-two Johns? Yes, it's it, 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 thirty-two oh. Johns. It's, it, it's, it's, just, it's just it's just like it's just like Las Vegas right. in the middle of the night. There's thirty-two Johns. <laughs> so, when you want to add an entry, you would add a column. Add another column. Another column. Mm. That's wild. That's not. Um, that's definitely. Now that I got your use crazy. case, that's not what I had to fix. But if I had to fix that, I would set fire to it. Um, that's that's out of control. <laughs> that's that's uh, what and, Dan and, did. Dan thought that the databases ran faster if you pivot them and had tables that were wider than they were tall. Wow, <laughs> that's super special. Probably probably for um, uh, Syntag's question. Uh, this is a very bad. Like you would not do that to have a tall table um, <laughs> solution that's it's it's a very bad example of how to do tall tables <laughs> i i can't i can't i mean if you uh yeah no I, I i know you guys are trying to make sense of this in like a logical way that sort of make dan not look like an idiot but dan's an idiot so. <laughs> yeah this doesn't seem possible <laughs> so the thing is um cassandra did anyone is that still a project that people are are using? It's a Cassandra database. Oh, fucking a, yeah. Are you <laughs> talking about Apache Cassandra, right? Yes, yes. Um, I I looked into using Cassandra. I never ran it into production. Um, I found some use case, uh, specifically my issue with it was that I couldn't do aggregations um, natively in the database. I would have to essentially query all the rows and then crunch them on my client. 
So that was a no-go for my use case. Um, but Cassandra is like a fancy um, storage engine that that's their preferred way of using it is to actually like make the tables wider. Like if that, but if not that makes in sense. the Dan way, by the way. Well, it's just that it's not like <clears throat> SQL databases are coded to make things taller. Cassandra sort of is like to make things wider. You keep adding keys to it, and um, um, that that just seems like an obtuse extra step to make. I mean, if you're constantly going to add data, table tallness is an eventuality. If, if I think what it, it it thinks of is like if you're saying like okay first name, um, and then you have seven Johns or something like that, like. What you're sort of saying is first name one is John, first name two is John, first name three is John. So I think it, Cassandra wants you to use like indexes or have ultimately each like key and column um, be like unique. It's Ooh. sort of a weird, it's like, a di it's different. Like it's, um, it's worth checking out to kind of just get a feel for it. Um, if you're, yeah, thinking a bit more abstractly. About Has anyone looked at Founda Foundation DB? That's a cool one too. That's almost the same uh, use case as, as Cassandra. Um, I've met their team once, like really early on in their company. They were super cool. So, so Cassandra seemed like, a, this is new to me, so I'm going to have a bit of a look at it, but it sounds like they're trying to not only um, provide fast, reliable solution, but trying to tackle that compression approach to not repeat themselves in storing data. Is that right? Um, there's some cool ass things that databases can do um, with compression and column oriented databases are good things to look at for that. They store all the columns together so the types are more consistent and it can be stored more efficiently. Um, I'm not sure how Cassandra works when it comes to things like that, memory efficiency. I think Cassandra just stores things naively in memory. I actually don't know if it's disk-backed or memory-backed. I'm just, I'm just not familiar with it. Right. I haven't looked at it in, in years. Mm, OK. Uh, the concept uh, that I was just rattling off before is something similar to uh, a solution I had to put in place around storing logs. Um, as, as you would expect, a, a logged line of data probably contains, uh, in many cases, maybe 50% of it's a repeat of the previous line of information. So uh, to solve that, I built out a solution that would take the logged line of data and break it up into segments of who, what, with, and why, or not so much the why, but when, um, and then dedupe it by only having one record in, in those four or five different tables, and then create a single record that joined them all up together where the repeats were by reusing the same index on a particular row. So if it was the same person every time, there's just one record, and the joining table would pull, pull in that one record, but maybe reference a different uh, what record for a different activity they might have been doing in that log. Um, and I noticed a, a massive cool. reduction. Yeah, it was a huge reduction in um, storage requirement. And um, 
through the relationships of uh, using uh, it was on a MySQL server, but use, using relationships, it was very quick and easy to find uh, patterns based on the data. So you you denormalized it, normalized it um, inside MySQL, and that was the f- benefit. He, of it? he, he abby normalized it. <laughs> yeah, it it. The, we got a lot of speed performance from it, um, oh, and then, like well. I said, the disk space usage was so much less. Um, and and all we we're doing basically is just prior to submitting the data, um, we just did a bit of an upsert function that would um, hash the data we're about to just into an MD5 hash the data we're about to put in and check to see if a record already exists with the same hash. And if <clears> it did, then we reuse it. If we if it didn't, we'd create a new record. Mm. All right. Well, I got to step out, but it's been fun being on again. Uh, see all. Thanks, uh, Thanks next so much. Time. Thanks, Ben. Um, yeah. Anyone I've... have experience with Foundation DB? Um, it was it was brought up. I I love the idea behind it. I've never had a chance to use it. I would actually just like to add something that I've recently learned about Cassandra. Uh, it has a tendency to similar to Mongo where it doesn't, you know, where it fails to actually um, save uh, documents into a collection. Cassandra has the tendency to dump entire tables. Apparently I've read that somewhere on, on Reddit, but I don't know if that's true or not. It's like, oops, <laughs> like a, a waiter just dropping a tray of food. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ugh, this again, sorry, data's all gone. Um, <laughs> I mean, that sounds awful. Um, <laughs> it would make Cassandra sound like a cache and not like a database. Um, I I don't know enough to kind of, I haven't used it enough, so I don't want to lead someone one way or another. But yeah, if you're curious, if anyone's curious about it, check Cassandra out. Um, someone in chat says they use it or they work. Um, no real context, if that's a positive or negative, um, we'll, we'll mm-hmm. see in a follow-up. <laughs> I, I know else? that when, uh, whenever, like, so what I'm curious about here is not using Cassandra or uh, Foundation DB myself before, if anyone's got this information, just what are the, what are the key differences between the, the typicals, MySQL, Postgres, Mongo, what are the key differences and the benefits of using these other solutions? I, I can throw some two, uh, thoughts behind it. Um, I think primarily um, there's kind of like a few shades that make someone choose something and then make someone want to migrate an existing project from one database engine to another database engine. So the migrating something that's up and running and theoretically works correctly to another um, database engine Usually, the idea there is is performance um, and reliability, and usually they're related. Usually, once you start stressing out a database and pushing it to its limits, and as far as its performance goes, that's when you start having it act unreliably. Um, so there's that connection there where you can be running MySQL under a relatively low load and be fine, but once you're pushing in a lot of data to it, then you can start having it fell over more consistently. Um, so once kind of the 
performance of all these different databases just like improves, it may be less of an interesting question of which one to use. If they're all like perfectly performant at the role that they're working on, like things are probably fine. So like when Postgres started to get really performant um, and full featured JSON functionality, like, you know, you can use that instead of MongoDB and then it becomes like a, a question of what libraries have um, the most like consistent support for it. Um, anyone else wanna, wanna chime in? And then another another thing is like features, like does it actually do what I, I need it to do? Um, one other database technology that's good to check out is Elastic Cache. And um, that you can think of as, it, you can start to think of it as the like source of truth for your data. Um, then you're gonna start possibly having some reliability issues. Um, Elastic Cache mostly, I think, fully wants to keep all its data in memory. So you start hitting issues once you hit that spillover. With a SQL database, generally you don't have to worry about that, but of course you could like use um, uh, SQL Lite as like an, a pure memory data store if, if you were so um, twisted. Um, but that functionality is important. And Elasticsearch has a bunch of built-in uh, natural language processing features. Like if you want like a word cloud, that's just like a method that you call. Um, some sorts of aggregations are pretty good. Searches are pretty good. Um, so those are all kind of built into it. So if you have a focus like that, um, and maybe there's even like some financial modeling type of databases where you can send it market data um, and it'll send back stuff. There's like the K language, I think has some, their Q language, they're, there's some weird like finance custom databases. Um, and then NoSQL databases were, were sort of popular because they had features that SQL databases didn't really have. Like if you had a, a database table um, that was like a, a sale, point of sales entry, um, you couldn't just add a key to it or add a JSON object, add a blob to it. And that blob had like blobs that were children of it, like you can with uh, Mongo. So when Mongo first came out, it was like pretty cool. It's like you can just stick all these pins in different things and join it. Um, yeah. Mongo is still pretty cool. I think the major advantage of Mongo. Overall, um, is I'd actually haven't seen this uh, approach to a database solution anywhere except Mongo. Is its um, models of actually no, uh, you, you might be you you may correct me in this one, but I've never seen this in SQL. But Mongo offers, as we all know, uh, a um, basically schemas and models where you you actually have pre-prepared uh, queries as soon as you create your models and. It's um, a pretty fast way of querying data from certain collections because it's bound to the collection and it's reliable. I've only, I do agree with Ben. Ben is totally correct on that Mongo sometimes has the tendency to not 
historical a story documented to the collection, but I haven't seen that and I haven't seen that in a long while. I it might have been even fixed, but I generally recommend that to anyone who is looking for a uh, really really scalable solution for storing data because you don't have to go through all the hassle. Oh, hey, I need to add another column here, or because that an end user might not even need that column to be stored within his document in a, in a database. Mongo offers that flexibility over pretty much any SQL solution that I've worked with. Yeah, I think Mongo's uh, or a NoSQL solution in general is uh, like good use case. If you weren't going to the nth degree I did with logging, it's a great place to chuck logs. Uh, in fact, that's where I first heard about NoSQL solution was, uh, I think it might have been, I got this right, Elasticache. Uh, or something like that, and uh, you chuck a few um, solutions on top of the data source, and you can start getting graphs and all that sort of stuff out of it. Uh, but it's really good for like fast writes uh, for very flexible uh, horizontal data. Elastic um, Search is the name of the product, and then Elastic ah. Cache, I think, is the name of like some AWS like product or something. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, no, you're right. Elastic Cache. Um, I'm wondering if it might have been Elastic Search uh, rather is the um, is the tool I think you're talking. Yeah, is that the, is that like the off, off brand or the, the open source solution to something else? Uh, I forget what it's called. It's like oh, a Ninja Elastic product or something. Search is a search engine based on the Lucene library. That's it. Okay. Yep. Distributed, multi-tenant capable, full text search engine with an HTTP web interface and schema-free JSON documents. Yeah, Java like and Apache license. Yeah, that that's what I um, thought I brought up a moment ago too, and it's pretty cool. Um, if you're building like a an app to yeah, just like do stuff with data, make it searchable. Um, mm. Kind of found it hard to get into. I was like confused, um, and there were some queries that I just couldn't figure out how to do. And I ultimately moved my app to Postgres, uh, Postgres full text search, um, and that's where I, I did have to kind of do some extra work to bring like text search and natural language processing type tools into the the Postgres database. Um, but yeah, I maybe should have would be better off if I stayed on Elasticsearch instead. Sometimes I wonder. Have you had any uh, troubles with uh, Postgres integration within JavaScript? I don't know if you work with JavaScript. I don't know that you work a lot of PHP. Yeah, so I would. I have JavaScript um, talk to. I'm mostly on the server. Do you mean JavaScript on the server or on the client? Uh, on the server. I see. I, see. Um, I don't really use Node to talk to Postgres. I use PHP or I use Python um, to talk to it. Um, I've started writing some more code in Node to take advantage of Amazon Lambdas. Um, and even some of those code structures I'm gluing and running them together using Python and sending the command to a Node.js um, running Lambda and then pull it back from the Lambda and then send it into Postgres. Um, but 
I, I did start doing some coding where I was making Postgres connections, and I kind of found it frustrating to get lost in the Node.js JavaScript callback soup type of things and uh, <laughs> understand fully how to use awaits when it comes to having um, yeah, all these queries going around and these loops. Um, so like maybe I say, give me a hundred things to work on. Like that's my the start of my query and then I'm looping over it. And then as each of those tasks are done, I want to send a write to my database. Um, you know, it's like, do I use a different connection? Do I, it just like starts getting confusing um, in terms of how to properly do that. And like how I'd code that sort of parallelism is in Python is I'd make the query to get a hundred of the things, um, do my work in parallel. And then um, once I have the hundred things kind of batch off the SQL rights. Um, and so it's just, to me, more confusion and uncertainty in regards to comfort with JavaScript than it is in regards to comfort with Postgres. Do, do you know if um, when using Lambda, like, do, do you need to worry about using async functionality uh, like to handle the many requests? Or does it sort of spool up one for each request, like a, an FPM, for example? Yeah. Um, it kind of, um, I guess it depends, or um, if what you're doing is CPU bound, like if you're running a C module that has a node module that you're sending off to the Lambda and you're really interested in diagonalizing that matrix or something like that, um, then what you'd want to do is create a, a new AWS Lambda for each unit of work and not do any parallelism inside of that Lambda. Um, but on the other hand, if you were using your AWS Lambda to crawl a website or crawl millions of websites, um, you would want to spin up one Lambda that has maybe 50 units of work on it, have those run off, and then come back, and also like spin up like a lot of those Lambdas. So you need to kind of fold in your parallelism and think about if it makes sense to have parallelism at each step, but probably add some. Yeah, right. Cool. DL Steve uh, made a comment um, following up on, we use a lot of Cassandra where I work. Uh, seems positive. He seems to like it. Um, he says that Cassandra is disk backed, and it's the primary database for a large uh, e-commerce website, and it's been reliable so far. Um, and, and that was actually really helpful to sort of remind me a bit about how Cassandra works. I think essentially it's a distributed key value B++ tree, and it partitions the data across different nodes, but keeps it sorted. And so when you're making modifications to it, you're essentially either adding to this key value B++ tree, or modifying things, or deleting things, or reading from it. Um, and that's great that it's it's reliable and, and disk-backed. And I think it's a, a really good way of getting out of the box um, kind of scalability um, across uh, multiple, multiple, multiple nodes. And I think you can even set up its um, redundancy, its, its k-factor, so to speak, 
where if you have a piece of data, K is how many nodes that data lives on. Um, and then Steve made another comment that all memory DBs are just asking for trouble. I've seen 40 terabyte plus in memory SAP HANA databases blow up. And it had to be restored from a backup, and it was not pretty. Um, totally, totally makes sense. And and I've I've been there um, running an all-memory database. Half of what we did was make sure that we could deal with what happens if that database fails. Um, and so Elasticsearch, I think, I'm 80 plus percent sure is all memory. Um, so you have to be really careful and thoughtful about what to do if and when. Um, that that system goes down or has reliability issues. Yeah, do those uh, like the in-memory solutions? I th always thought they sort of use the memory, um, so more for optimization or or speed. But they were still writing to disk for persistence. I mean, there's an I think there was an option for that or something like that. Yeah, it, it all all kind of depends, I guess. Um, Redis is all memory but it has a write-only append log um, and, mm. and different levels of um, persistence. I, I'm hoping someone else is more qualified to jump on and talk about it. Um, but I think there's like checkpoints where it saves the full state of uh, its global values to disk. And then as each transaction comes in, it has a replay log of it until the next time that it saves its current state to disk and then maybe churns and ref uh, flushes the replay log um, from that point. So it plays that sort of game. But you can even turn that option off. You can say, I don't care, like or whatever. Um, and there may be a reason to do that. If you're definitely just using Redis as a cache that you can blow away, that's that's one way to do it. Maybe the mild performance gain is, is worth it. Um, that's one thing that PyRedis example, I wonder if it does, if it is only pure memory, um, or if it also stores logs to disk. I think it doesn't store logs. Hmm. I mean, it's a, the use cases, but like to your point before, if you're wanting to just cache some data, um, ephemeral is not a problem. You know, just if it, if it disappears, it's just going to recreate the record again and, you know, just speed something else up. Um, they're, they're great solutions, so much faster. Yeah. Um, we can uh, hop back to um, uh, Dennis, your um, Sentinel project, um, and also any other subjects or topics, or we can keep talking, keep talking distributed databases, um, whatever everyone's up for. I would like to um, touch on a little bit about Redis. Uh, I even though it has uh from what i've read up uh, in the docs it has beautiful integration with um node i still have not found a proper use case for it i understand that a lot of people do use it primarily for logging i might be wrong on this one but i i, I still cannot clarify that in my head like what is truly the 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 let's call it the ultimate use case for Redis or any Redis type solution. Uh, I think Redis, uh, a personal opinion here, but 
I think it just really comes down to it's one of those preferred caching solutions. Uh, sure, you can use it as a database, but um, it's a key value store um, and it's great for uh, its, its ability to be a memory-based cache. Um, it's either that or memcache or others just like it. I mean, that's the use case I've always had is just to use it as a caching service. Do you, do you have an issue with it as a caching service, or do you mean using it as a primary database? No, but, but I, I just couldn't, you know, wrap my head around, like, what is it really used for in the industry? Uh, I'm, I've been trying to look into it a little bit, but I would most certainly yeah. not, most certainly um, not use it as a primary database solution. Yeah. One use case that made a lot of sense for it was... Um, we were building like anti-fraud, like fraud profiles on um, different um, like sources, um, and so we had a long-running job that would crunch our different signals that we've kind of identified and correlated, and offline built uh, metrics to correlate like fraud likelihood of like these different signals and mapping them to a decision tree and then creating that output. Um, and then, so this job would run and it would take um, uh, 500 machine hours or whatever, 5,000 machine hours to transform like a lot of raw data into a s relatively small set of rules that says, if you see a bunch of this stuff, then it's safe. If you see a bunch of this other stuff, then it's unsafe, right? And so you would basically use it somewhat like a what, like a model, well, basically like a model. Yeah, for um, fraud detection. That actually seems pretty cool. So all of that was happening before Redis, and then we came up with these just like sets of rules, and those rules we stored inside Redis. And, we and would, then you would just run checks uh, on those rules, and if if you know the data being passed through is uh, complying with the rules, you would just store them. And then we just say like, so we'd use it in so in real time. We would query this backend and ask it like, is this cool? Or like, we would forward that data to um, a live client, like a live um, requester of the data and be able to imply or signify in real time, this is an ad impression that's like safe or not safe. Um, so we store that data and query it in Redis. And then every 24 hours or so, we'd rerun another job and wipe Redis and update those kind of real-time rules that we're enforcing. No, that's, that, that sounds amazing. Yeah, really um, popular Super. use case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I've, I see like in PHP world, Laravel, um, and I'm sure other frameworks do the similar thing, but Redis is um, commonly used to uh, cache blocks of um, code logic as well. Uh, if you've got a piece of logic that's likely to not want to change every single time you run it, um, you can actually wrap it in a, a caching um, facade and it will take the output of that function and throw it into Redis. And the next time the code gets there, it'll check to see if there's a cache for it. And if so, just return the result. Otherwise, go back in and run the whole logic again. 
and you get some really good speed boosts from that. There's um, kind of two things there is like caching actual data in your database. So if you have, if you're Twitter, let's say, and you run a SQL query to get the top five hashtags for today, that SQL query may take like a lot of computational effort to run and only re result in a small data payload. So you can store in Redis like a key value of like the MD5 hash or the SHA3 hash of your SQL statement. And the value is like the JSONification or some kind of serialization of the result from the database. So you um, cache your SQL queries um, with that. And that's like a soup, that's kind of the most common, um, in my opinion, use case for Redis is to uh, cache your SQL queries. Um, and the other thing that you can do with it is if your method is, is a pure data, a pure computational method, um, you can, the, I think the CS term is memoize the function. Um, so if it's like find, the, find whether or not this number is prime, something like that, um, you pass in a number and you return true or false. And that method is like uh, n squared or square root of n or whatever pure math um, theory says that it is. But if that number is super, super big, if that's a quadrillion, that would take a long time to run. So you can stash it in Redis. Um, and before you run that computationally intensive method, you check, hey, Redis, do you know the answer to this question? And, and it'll kind of tell you. And then you can do the same thing on the database side of things. The bigger problem there, um, and that spawns like a constant uh, web comic or XKCD is um, you have the problem of invalidating this cache. Like a certain number will always be or will always not be prime. Or when it comes to the, the top five trending hashtags on Twitter, like that's something that's constantly going to be changing. So you don't want to organize your app in a way that the first time you run that query, like if it was eight months ago, like that forever are the trending hashtags. So the idea is cache invalidation. Um, and I and there's that that joke. There's um, three problems in computer science, or two problems in computer science: um, cache invalidation, naming things, and off by one errors. Um, but cache mm -hmm. invalidation is kind of like this core ultimate problem of distributed systems. But caching data inside of Redis to spare uh, resources on the database is a super effect important way that. Um, people use to scale platforms. Yeah, you. Um, uh, one of the really cool features of Redis is the the TTL to be able to chuck a key and value in and set how long you want it to live for. Um, and that's that's the typical approach to some of those, um, the logical solutions there where you, you, you know, it's not a math problem, it's like a potentially dynamic changing output that might change not frequently, but every five minutes or something, it might need to be re-evaluated. Um, like the, the hashtag example could be one of them. Uh, and you just put a, a five minute TTL on it and, uh, you know, it'll keep caching it and then recache it after five minutes. Uh, a, a really good a similar use case that I use Redis for here is uh, rate limiting. Uh, so if you've got, um, if you want to basically put a rate limit solution over the top of your API interface so that someone doesn't spam it, 
um, using a combination of their IP address and if I've got it, their authentication or something like that, I can create a unique key per person per API route and basically track the number of requests they're making on it with a time to live. And if it goes over a certain limit before it has a chance to clear that cache, I can start returning back different status codes to indicate that they're they're hitting their their rate limits. That's actually something I need to implement. Uh, actually, that's a it's a pretty cool solution. And I, I suppose it wouldn't be that hard to set up. No, it's it's really really like it's a simple approach. Uh, depending on the library you use that works with the the caching solution, like Redis in this example, um, uh, the Laravel cache. Um, facade uh, or service is um, it's it's well geared for this because it has the ability uh, I can't remember the functions off the top of my head but you can basically say cache hit this and create a value um, of x or whatever it is but it, it won't override the existing value and then you can use increment as well as a function there's like an increment function so you can just basically hit that same key every time and just say increment 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 and the result will come back to you and you just analyze the result and say well you're over your 10 requests, so go down this path. Otherwise, oh, you're still under, make the requests succeed. No, that's, that's pretty cool. A good way to upsell your customer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're hitting your limit. Give me more cash. The gold plan or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and anything that's, um, like, I guess, real-time Redis is good for. Um, like, a lot of those use cases, you'd be slightly more concerned querying an SQL database, it just like feels like the cost of querying an SQL database is higher. Um, so things that are fast and more ephemeral like that, like if um, like if your rate limit app, part of your app breaks for like a day, you know, no one might notice and that might be fine. Um, but if like your user's table isn't available, people will notice. Um, so well, things that are are fast, yeah. Um, hopefully, someone notices. Like, <laughs> <laughs> one's in your app, um, but yeah, it's it's like lightweight things that can fail, um, and that maybe you query more often or use more as like a working cache um, for a feature. That's that's kind of where Redis's sweet spot is, and then also SQL caching. Pretty good. We're at two two hours fifteen. It's it's been already it's it's been already two hours. What? This doesn't feel like two hours to me. <laughs> the time flies. Hey, Mike, is um I, I might have missed some posts somewhere. Have we have we how do we go with um scheduling for the podcast? Um, We've like thrown some time. ideas around, but um nothing's really really confirmed. Um. Um, but I, I think we're starting to, some of the ideas we're, we're throwing around is to keep this like Saturday thing going and try to also add in other days and also possibly yeah. to have, yeah, like a few people like have some redundancy or, or have some partitioning um, in how we do it. So maybe there'll be like a Tuesday crew that's kind of different from the Saturday crew sort of thing. Um, but yeah, that, that was mostly my idea. I, I think it just makes sense. Um, and last week, uh, everything went great without me there. Um, so that's kind of my encouragement for us to have more um, without necessarily anyone in particular in them. As in, 
uh, I think Wednesday was a popular day and Tuesday, maybe having just like letting a Tuesday crew um, kind of populate and show up. Yeah, that's cool. That's very good. Yeah, it'd be nice to get that um, mixed. I think I might have chucked that comment in there after you suggested that was, um, uh, you know, to get the different crews, you might get different types of listeners that enjoy the different type of content. Yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds cool to me. Um, cool. So I can try and kind of think of a few more more things, um, but definitely inclined to start wrapping things up. Um, was there anything else on uh, your password manager you wanted to hit? I, I feel like we kind of um, didn't finish that all that. Not for now, but but I, I can tell you this that um I am nearing the end. Well, the back end is pretty much intact. Well, I mean done. But I just need to uh, configure uh, like two more routes and the uh, express back end. But otherwise, it's just the front end work that I'm currently working on. But uh, I have one more topic that I want to bring up if if we have the time for it. If you, if you got the topic, we got the time. <laughs> uh, Docker. Uh, I've Ooh. seen the rise in popularity of, about Docker. And, well, I want to specifically focus on Docker uh, because I really want to learn more. And since I know that you guys use it, and I believe there's more people in this uh, podcast, in the podcast room currently that use it more than I do because I don't do it at all. I want to hear experiences and um, what you guys generally think about it. Sure, sure. I have um, some thoughts, but I don't know if they're the most pro-Docker. So if anyone like uses it and, and speaks to it, I don't mean to say that Docker is bad. I think it's a great tool. I just, my workflow is a little different. Um, but I'll just give it a 10 count and then I'll chime in if, if no one else does. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I'll, I'll just say that um like for me i just use docker for my dev environment uh, it's a really great way of uh, modeling your local environment to be as near and as close to what your production environment could or would be or should be um but uh, i've never used docker as a production solution uh, i know a lot of people do and can and, it, and it's capable of doing that i'd have to say i'm a, uh I'm, I'm a little i mean i've, I've definitely uh inexperienced in its practical use for production um and would love to know more about the main reasons why people choose it to be a production deployment solution um but for me the way i'm using it for my local development feels more like if you're going to go live with such a thing you're you're probably just looking for the ability to keep that persistent environment the same regardless of whatever the box is you're chucking it on um but yeah I mean, as a solution that basically will leverage um, some core aspects of, uh, dare I say, Unix, Linux operating system to not have to run a whole new virtual machine. Uh, it's great. It means that my resources or my dev, dev box aren't compromised by running VirtualBox. Um, and I can still run in a, an environment that's matching my production environment uh, to get very persistent, uh, very consistent results. That's, that's super cool. I, I that that gets my my head my head uh, head wheels turning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the 
the way the the distinction between using Docker for development and using Docker for production, like to me, makes perfect sense. Um, that's kind of where my blocker has been in in using Docker. I've been using AWS a lot, like over my dev career, and with AWS you get really easy to spin up, almost dangerously so when it when it comes to the bill. Um, they're mm-hmm. super expensive servers, but you get to just spin a new one up and it's clean. It has whatever version of a bunch Linux or that you want. Um, someone asked earlier, what's your preferred uh, Linux distribution? I tend to use Ubuntu. Um, I find it the most easy to, it's like the most Apple-like in terms of the promise of it just works. Um, the apt library seems to work really well. It seems to get updates and new packages fast enough. Um, and the LTS environment is, is pretty cool. Um, uh, but so with AWS, you just say, I want a new server. Um, you log in, maybe you mess it up, you delete some of the system files by accident, or you, uh, del- you just, configure it wrong. And if you want to just nuke it, um, you just go to AWS and you right click and say delete, and then you create a new one. So that workflow had kind of been a part of my workflow before I got introduced to the concept of Docker. Um, And so that was kind of a a hindrance to me getting started on it. Um, But definitely when it comes to development and wanting to do development locally, I can see a lot of value with using Docker in order to do that. Um, I've I've tried investing some time. Maybe I spent two and a half days, three days trying to set up a, a Docker environment, but I didn't really get the hang of it. I was like confused. Like so, I got my PHP web server running um, on port eighty, but like, how do I in my other tab access that? How do I access that from another computer on my network? Um, those were where I kind of got stopped. I'm sure there's simple and straightforward answers to them. I, after like an hour of um, looking into it, I didn't get an answer and just kind of stopped getting into Docker at that point. Um, but it does make a lot of sense for development. Like if you want to try out a new framework, you want to do it in an environment where you haven't messed up your Python installation like three months ago. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like having a clean environment makes a ton of sense. And then when it comes to deploying an app in production, I'd start worrying just that now there's, there's extra layers of complexity to this process where like Docker is talking to my network and my network, like, like there's just like another class of bugs. So I'd possibly be concerned about running it in production, but at the same time, it may give you, it may also remove like a, a separate, totally separate class of, of issues. Yeah, it's um, uh, from, a, from the production perspective, I have my, have my um, doubts that it's the right solution. But again, I think I'm coming from just not knowing how to do it. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, it's cool that you're interested. I think definitely taking a look at the, the dev side of things is, uh, worth worth exploring. Um, I forgot to mention too. There's a, a the other advantage um, I have is uh, at my workplace. Whenever we bring on a new developer, um, the 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 spool up time, the you know the up 
the uptime to get them running and developing is much quicker when you don't have to try and tailor and tweak their environment. You just say, download this repo, uh, run you know, Docker Compose up, and then as long as you've got Boom, it set there up properly, you go. Usually, yeah, it, within within like an hour or two, Not they're up and running cool. and they're hitting the code. Yeah. That's super cool. De- deployment is a huge, huge pain in the uh, the whatever um, in general. <laughs> and even if you're on AWS, like how I do it is I have different roles and I have a script that hits Amazon's API and says, I want a new instance that's this role. It's tagged as that role. It um, spins it up. It SSH is onto it and like retries all kind of automatically through a script. And then when it SSH is onto it, it sets it up, um, knows what role it is and runs like a specific for that role um, deployment script that I write and maintain. Um, But I mean, it's a process that works fine and is like sort of scalable, but it's not great. And it took a lot of time setting that process up like each of those yada yadas, like, and then wait to SSH onto it. Like that's like a source of bugs. That's, you know, a hassle that took a while to write. Um, organizing it through Docker um, sounds like it makes a lot of sense. Spin up the server, get onto it, get your repo, write Docker up. And then you're, you still have a deployment script, but it's organized by Docker, I guess. Um, that's probably better. <laughs> I have, um, I, th- I guess the, the challenge that comes to my mind always um, is um, to uh, consider, are you going to, like, is it, is it faster to do, because, um, I mean, you're, you're kind of doing what Docker does in a way with your, your setup script, and I'm wondering whether it's faster to do that than it is to spend the effort of defining um, ever-changing, like, like destroying and recreating an AMI uh, image for deployment yeah. and yep, using yep, something yep. like auto-scaling. I've yeah. always sort of tried to, think about what's better. I, I mean, I originally, the product I'm working on, we came from, a, a, I forget what it's called now, but it's basically Amazon's um, deployment Stock. solution for, uh, what's Elastic, it? Uh, no, not Beanstalk. Elastic the, Beanstalk. Uh, it's, uh, you use Opsworks or something like that. I don't know yeah. what it is. I forget. Yeah, it's been a little while since I touched it. Like we, we turned it off like yeah. two years ago because we found that every time a spike came along that we needed to cover for our performance um by the time the box was created and um executed all the scripts to set up the box and deployed the code and it was like the spike had gone and we just cost ourselves 50 cents you know for half an hour or something like that um and i always felt like it's it's easier if you're as part of your deployment process you um you know, you compile all your code down, run all the necessary minification and, and whatnot, and then chuck that into your artifact, send it off to a, uh, a newly created um, EC2 instance, um, do what you're doing, you know, run your scripts to make sure that it's you know, configured to your operating environment's needs. And then okay. once you're done there, take an AMI image of it and then replace it in your auto scaling group in AWS to say, here's my new image. And um, my understanding is auto scaling will then slowly swap out the instances it's got running with the new image. Um, and that's meant to be less downtime and faster. I've tried getting into that workflow. I, I think my issue with it is that it makes releases super formal um, and, and super 
like limited. Like I think this week on my team of three people, we like quote unquote did a release like six times um, yep. to our PHP web app. And that's just like, all we did was SSH onto it and run git pull. Um, <laughs> so yeah. if you're doing um, like a, I mean, maybe what you do is you create an AMI that has a cron that runs git pull every hour, right? And maybe that's fine. Um, and that might be like the way to do it, but having, um, you know, then it's like what are releases that it's just like confusing. Um, I, I think there's a lot of room for, for improvement with all that. I think also there's a lot of things that people do that if you just rip them out completely <laughs> and um, like the process would be just as good and a lot less complicated. Um, and I think constantly cutting AMIs is sort of like that. Um, yeah, but, but it, it does depend. If, if you have this performance issue where you wanna be able to spin up an instance of your web app like as soon as possible, um, and you're this like scaled up e-commerce engine, um, I can see where it makes sense. And, and I can also see where you also might not wanna do releases that often. Yeah, it's um, it's not where we're it's not where our products at with deployments. It's something we're looking at um, mostly for those needs of a uh, uh, fast scalability. Um, but we we're probably very flexible in the sense of kind of how your team is with respect to being able to deploy something fairly quickly right now. Um, be it that we're we're using a um, uh, like a deployment agent that we've got running on our servers that will pull down new code as it's um, made available to it uh, on an S3 location. And um, and that's really good because, yeah, we, we can release like 10 times a day theoretically um, and, and not really have to spend much effort doing it. But cutting, as you say, like um, AMIs, the only reason why we want to consider that is to be able to um, have a much more scalable and responsive solution because, I mean, to deploy an image uh, into yeah, EC2, it's, it's so yeah. fast. Um, yeah. but I mean, it's, it's, it's not a major push for us to consider. Um, and, and to relate it back to Docker is like one of the other solutions we were considering was Docker in production. Um, but, uh, in-house, we don't have necessarily the right level of expertise to dictate whether that's the right solution or not. So we're, we're reaching out to a couple of our other, um, uh, sibling products within the company to see what kind of skills they got there. And we do have some other Docker expertise elsewhere. So if I, um, if I learn any more, I'll be sure to yeah. share it on a future. That's podcast. a good reason to like consolidate, um, whether it's DevOps or ops or just expertise within a, a company, like how crazy would it be to have a 500 person company, 150 engineers, 30, three groups of 30 or whatever the, the numbers are, or just like, reinventing different versions of the same way of like managing and deploying their code. It's like a lot of churn, a lot of extra effort. Um, do you find it scary to cut an AMI? Like, I feel like it's like, um, like I'd worry I'd mess it up or I'd worry like, is this server the right server to cut an AMI from any concerns there? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you're cutting an AMI from an existing box, that's always running, um, oh. I'd say for sure. I think I think if your approach was to um, use a uh, a default AMI image as like your base, 
and say like this is going to be our our our, our mold our uh, no our mold our plasticine you know whatever mm-hmm. and then shape it as you needed um to, to as as part of your artifact build process um that sounds right I, I, I yeah i'd be comfortable with that i know of course you would probably at some point for optimization retake a snapshot of that base um to just speed up your artifact build process um maybe every like quarter or six months or something that's super interesting so almost like the right way to fully solve this problem is have code that can kind of do it the way i was talking about which is spin up a new server from like a really raw um linux install or base operating system install set up and run the installation script and the setup script and the configuration script and all this stuff for your app. And then what I would do is just throw that, that um, bundle of joy into production. Your process would be to take that, turn it into an AMI, and then essentially deploy that AMI into production. Yeah, I mean, that would be the end goal. Uh, right now, yeah. we're, not, we're not doing that, but definitely that's where we want to try and get. It's only mostly focusing on scalability. Um, that's well, it, well, like really. what they say, if you don't if you don't aim for it, like you're not going to hit it. Like as no, fancy right. as that sounds, it's not that much more complicated than any other thing that you're doing, and it at least gives kind of like a strategy, like a directive for for a process for it. And it's all um, when it comes to like the real world, like everyone's doing this in a super sloppy way. So <laughs> if you're yeah, thinking yeah. about this at all, you're definitely ahead of the curve. Curve. No, that's that's fine. Yeah, like it. I think probably to the point you're making. If, if if what you've got works, and and you're not seeing a problem, then it's no point in really wasting your time trying to fix it if it works. Um, for us, yeah. there's that push because we are seeing a bit of a an issue with regards to it. So, um, but look, I, another... I love the idea of um, deployment scripts because you know you can you can tweak them as you need. And and to your point, you if you've got it up and running you can quite simply just do a git pull and you that's if the only difference really in your deployment is just subtle aspects of your code that's that's actually faster than going through the whole process of an artifact build yeah yeah i would feel like oh i just want to change make the logo bigger cool now i'm doing like a elastic beanstalk or whatever auto scaling deploy that's like oh i made it i didn't make it big enough and you want to like make another small change you're afraid or you're like mm. it feels wasteful to like have the deploy process run again um so that's kind of this like aesthetic factor for it yeah um, another kind of thing to think about totally unrelated to whether or not you use docker on those like auto scaling things is like you want to keep your web server as thin as possible and push its computation kind of downstream and then make sure that like your your database or your cache is just like able to handle the the load. Um, do, do you actually have it where your web server like CPU um, becomes the the scaling bottleneck? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, uh, recently, we've probably been more hitting memory related bottlenecks. Um, oh, okay, okay, some, and that's yeah. related also to. Um, just the number of people or requests hitting your web server tier. Um, that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. 
Um, I guess in, if in, you we've we've got um we've got infrastructure globally in three different locations, and uh, in one location we've got dedicated um, uh, queue processing servers, which um, you know they're, they're quite capable of doing what they need. Um, they don't usually hit their limits because of the way we spool up uh, X number of wor workers. But in uh, a couple of the other regions, we're sharing our web um, load boxes with the processing scripts. Uh, and we're noticing because oh. we can't control the quantity of users, um, they're sometimes encroaching on the memory that's needed to run the processes. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's uh, something I split up um, early. It's just like every processing job um, have it yeah, be its own kind of standalone script. And for a while, I had each processing job on its own, like small to medium uh, AWS instance type. And over time, I just, uh, I use a service liquid web, storm on demand, now liquid web. Um, another good one to check out, I think it's like high velocity. Um, but regardless, there's a lot of these services that are like a mix between AWS and like a co-located server. AWS just charges a premium, and this is just a lesser price server. So I moved all these different jobs basically onto just a very, very beefy box that basically costs the same amount as those smaller boxes um, just by going to kind of a small, uh, less brand name um, service and finding like better pricing for like compute and memory resources. Yeah. As long as you're, as long as it's working for you, you're not hitting uh, any bottlenecks. Um, that's perfectly that's fine. Sure. I guess you just, the only concern you'd have to worry about then is just that the, if it's a co location for, um, you know, you're sharing, sharing resources with another, unknown um as long as the provider is doing all their due diligence to make sure that you're secure and they can't you know memory access your stuff um that's fine yeah, kind of some aws um trivia or almost trivia because i can't remember the exact details um above a certain aws instance size or at least four specific instance sizes there's probably some nuances to the rule you're and definitely if you're in the largest size of that class, you're the only tenant on the box. So if you're looking at M1 small versus M1 large versus M1 extra large versus M1 4x large, um, if you're on the largest, mm. like M1 4x large, you know that you're the only um, user on that box. But if you're on an M1 small, you also know that there's a bunch of other users on that box. Yep. Is that is that um, common knowledge, or is that just a uh, like some theories? It it's something that my AWS support rep told me about. Um, oh, okay. When you, when you complain enough to them, essentially about your app being overwhelmed, but you're blaming the hardware um, anyway, yeah. and they're getting all these emails, um, they throw that fact at you uh, to kind of try to make try to say like. Now, if you're if you think that it's because you have a lot of noisy neighbors, like you can try the M1 like 16x large, and you know that you're the only tenant on the box. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I'm wondering. Uh, I mean, I, I I'm really um, not experienced in uh, infrastructure maintenance, but um, what I was shown once was 
uh, in, in a virtualized environment, uh, and if I use the wrong terms here, forgive me, um, there's these things, uh, considerations of like lungs and, and other probably organic terms to describe CPU, RAM, disk uh, within a VM server. And um, I, I felt like AWS should be or probably is running in a way where you're virtually on your own box. And maybe this is where it leads to what you're suggesting is, but I guess at a certain limit, you're, you're sharing some of these lung capacities and, and whatever the other terms might be for disk and memory. Um, and then I guess if you pay enough, you'll take up the full resources of at least one virtualized box. Um, I mean, it makes sense to me. Uh, just wondering yeah. at what limit that kicks in and, and if it's uh, consistent enough to determine or is it just sometimes luck of the draw? And also sometimes some servers just like are old or have bad SSDs or have like a bad RAM chip on them. Um, but that, that is an interesting question. Like how can you detect it or, or how can you actually um, figure it out? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. I think it might actually, you, you're right in that like whenever you typically get a suspected, um, like, you know, you reboot your box and the, an issue occurs again fairly quickly, it's determined yeah. that it's a hardware fault. Um, I mean, it could be your configuration still, but uh, if you shut down and destroy that EC2 and spool up a new one off its image, more than yeah. often it'll come back and work fine again, and it's for that hardware reason. Yeah, um, definitely. And so I guess it's like your neighbor can just be kind of like abusing your disk or something like that. Um, yep. And even if like you have your own disk, but you're still connected to the same motherboard, just there's going to be less bandwidth on that motherboard for you. Um, and likely when they they rate the machines and they you know explain it in like legalese, like they account for all of that. Um, but in practice, you know, so you're not like technically not getting what you're paying for or, or something of the sort, but in practice, you'd rather be the only M1 small on an M1 8X large, which I don't even think is a thing. I think it goes up to four, <laughs> um, than being on one where all eight of your neighbors are just like awfully like abusing your, their disks, you know, you, your, yeah. um, motherboard yeah. is just going to be running hotter. Um, which might even be a big source of it, just like the temperature of your of your motherboard. I I heard, uh, let's say, just comment. I don't know if it came from a reputable source, but I heard that if you do cycle your um your resources in AWS enough, you will always remain on newer infrastructure. Um, That's or, definitely or true. Yeah, or at least not the latest, but they won't they won't chuck you back onto a, a an instance where they're scheduling to hopefully replace its hardware because it's you know had its burn time too for too long. Um, so I guess that might come down to having statically run boxes is not always a great idea. If you've been doing it for more than twelve months, you're probably sitting on really worn hardware that if you just took an image, destroyed it, and spooled it back up again, you might get some performance boost from that alone. I think some people um, on my team were spinning up like dozens of boxes and then culling like the bottom couple um, once a job started running and just making sure their code was like resilient against that 
in order to kind of account for that. And it just makes sense. Like they have yeah. some giant data warehouse filled with like hundred, what hundred tens of thousands of computers in each warehouse. And it's like, some are just going to work better than others. That's just kind of the, how, how it'll work. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've had some servers that were just like on old hardware. Um, and I think eventually at one point, Amazon like went through a bunch of different things, either forced us to, they were just like, we're going to reboot these servers in like a month, just like letting you know, like we tried, we waited, like we have to do it. Um, actually there was one, uh, I, f I forget what exploit came out. If it was like, um, security exploit that had to do with Zen and within like 24 hours, they were just like, we're restarting everyone's servers as soon as possible. Like, just so you know, um, that was like a cool one. And then if you have old servers, they'll, they'll nag you or eventually you'll notice that your application's a lot slower. And then like a month later, Amazon's like, we're taking your server out of rotation. Um, so it's good to be proactive about it too and to have a plan for kind of constantly moving around different hardware. Um, yeah, one of our, our kind of main um, database we're starting to see is running slightly slower. And so we're thinking that it's like, we have a big RAID 10 um, SSD array and there's some hardware failure in it. So we're gonna like migrate to a new server just kind of ahead of it. Mm, yeah. So d did you say the the RAID 10 you're running, this is in AWS or local? No, this is a Storm Liquid Web. Oh, okay, yep. It's kind of like a custom order, actually. We used up all the disk space um, in our two terabyte or one terabyte SSD. Um, and yeah, we were getting close to it. And I emailed them and they just said, oh, cool. Like, what do you want? Let's customize it. Let's um, let's do whatever, uh, which is pretty, pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hopefully yeah. that kind of, um, <laughs> we went down an interesting path there, but Shadow Path, did that give you some inspiration one way or the other with Docker? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm actually right now reading the docs. Yeah, cool. The only thing that really uh, spins my head around is <laughs> how to actually write the Docker file itself. Yeah. What is a Docker yeah. file? Um, Docker files are great. Yeah. Are they YAML? Uh, if I remember right, yes. Awesome. Trying to find uh yeah uh, yeah do, i suggested this a while back too but there's a tool that we use at work uh just to abstract some of the docker stuff um that you might want to take a look at as well it uses a very similar uh configuration structure to docker but it um it comes with a lot of like uh pre-done configuration stuff for for specific services I do remember you mentioning that, yeah. Well, we're almost at three Sorry, hours. I was, I was muted. <laughs> um, yeah, um, do you want to, yeah, uh, Gabe, throw out any more Docker wisdom and then let's uh, call it? Um, 
I don't know how much I can throw around except uh, uh, abstraction is your friend when it comes to Docker because some of the commands can be pretty um, can be pretty uh, hard to remember. Um, for some of the projects that don't use uh, the specific wrapper uh, Lando, uh, they actually the projects that don't use this have a custom make file, so we just run make uh, and have a collection of of Docker commands under each one of those, uh, which can come oh, in wow. very handy. Uh, so, sweet. like, if we want to, you know, clean slate a project, we just do like make, uh, what was it? Make prune up, and then it just <laughs> clears down all the containers and starts them up. It's really handy. Oh, that is super cool. I, I love. I like using make files to help organize and even like, yeah, set up dependencies. Um, what if you don't want to make a make file? What if you're afraid of make files? Can you still use Docker? Docker? Yeah, I mean, make files themselves aren't super complex, so it's definitely worth looking at anyways. But um, yeah, Docker, again, abstraction is your friend. So if you can figure out a system that works for you where you don't have to be directly dealing with it, then uh, it'll probably really speed things up. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll check it out and try to ask some more questions next time. Next time, does that mean does that mean we're coming to a close? <laughs> this just has to oh, go on forever. On. Let's go. Let's go for four hours. Let's do it. <laughs> no, let's not. Yeah, just trying to I'm throw gonna... out some some segues and some. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna jump off now anyway. Um, so yeah, thanks for thanks for chatting. Awesome. Yeah, may as well wrap it up here. Well, let's yeah. wait for him to leave first, and then. <laughs> yeah. No. <worries>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. I know. Right. I know. Pi is in the is in the chat. <laughs> uh, see you, Mosby. <laughs> uh, he's, he's gone. See you. It's some uh, Oh wait, yeah, now, that, he's gone. now that he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's talk wrap trash this up. about Laravel. Um, <laughs> Yeah, nah, okay, let's wrap this up. Know. Sounds like you guys had a lot of uh, really good discussions. Oh, this was super fun. I had a blast and can't wait to listen to it again. <laughs> <laughs> Prepare oh, for the five-hour edit. Too much fun, too much fun. Yeah. I'm going to put in some work on the, on the podcast site. I, I totally forgot about it. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, yeah. We have to talk about how we're using vanilla JS framework for our super lightweight podcast feed. The only reason why I why I actually opted out for React is just to instead of having to go for those iframes, just to have like a player component and that's it. Yeah, no, it, I, it I fell in love with it. components with React. React is fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hey, okay. I had a question earlier about React, and now that <laughs> now that um, now that everyone else is gone, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll ask it. Now that Shadow Path is gone, now that Mossbyte's gone, um, so I have this like React app that's sort of like a feed. Um, it hits my API, mm -hmm. grabs data points, and like embeds them. I want right. to turn that into a tag that I can instruct to like a client to say, 
take this like div ID equals Micers feed seven two three, and then the script tag, and like I want to just like make my React app go into that div tag. Like, you know, and I started it with like React create or whatever, and I get how to do it to make it like a standalone deployed like website, um, but I'm unclear about how to do it to make it just like like that, like a component. Oh, so you basically want to have, you basically want to create a React app without using the npm command. <laughs> yep, yep. Let I want to kind of understand that, like extend or customize that npm create. But it's like not clear how to do that, right? Like I'm not, I'm onto something and being confused about how to do that. The thing is, with React, there is um, an entire API written uh, for you to not even have to, uh, you know, npm install the create React modules. Okay. Oh, there you go. My, how do I my, do my, it? Disc <laughs> my Discord. Wait, my Discord died out for a second. Let me actually find. It. I need to Google it real quick. I haven't done that in a while, and I like I literally, I literally just um, use create React app for all my React stuff. Oh, uh, is this it? Wait, totally? Uh, this is the component API, isn't it? No, it's not. Wait, I need to check the React box. Would you say you're pretty confident there's a way to do that? Yes, uh, there okay. is. A... Okay, cool. I think uh, just I'm going to hop off now. Makes sense. I think we can. I, I I've got a. I've got half an answer to my question, so I'm yeah. I'm pretty happy to end it there. If you want to uh, tell Craig, no, our found it. Recording bot. We're done. <laughs>